VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, July the 11th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Fonsking, he's back in the producer's chair today. Let's get you on the program. That means if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And I heard Brian Medore in the newscast mention that the Midsummer Classic, the MLB All-Star Game, does indeed take place tonight. But what is a spectacle for many baseball fans to tune into the Home Run Derby? And Toronto Blue Jay slugger Vladimir Guerrero Jr. won the Home Run Derby last night. Fantastically, becomes the only father-son duo to win the Home Run Derby because his dad did it back in 2007 when he outlasted or outblasted Ken Griffey Jr. So last night, Vladdy wins over a Tampa Bay's Randy Arozarena, 25-23 in the final round. Guerrero hit about 29,390 feet. There was a 484 blast, a 484 foot blast, but so far as the number of home runs hit in total throughout the night last night, Arosa Rain hit 82 home runs last night. Guerrero, 72. But it was a bit of fun to watch. And of course, his dad, for people who are old enough to remember the great Vladimir Guerrero, probably one of the very best baseball players I ever saw. Vladdy says he doesn't really remember much. He was only seven years of age at the time when dad won the home run derby. A couple of quickies in baseball. So it was on this date in 1914 that Babe Ruth made his Major League debut. He began his career as a pitcher. Many people think of the Bambino as, of course, a slugger, which he was. He had 714 home runs. That record stood for some 39 years. But at the beginning, he was a pitcher, and a good one at that. Twice won 20 games, but he wanted to play every day, so he decided to move out into the outfield. But Babe Ruth made his debut in 1914, and on this date in 1985, Nolan Ryan, the first Major League pitcher to earn over 4,000 strikeouts in a career, of course, finished with 5,714, number one all-time, ahead of Randy Johnson at 4,875. For active pitchers, Max Scherzer, 32 at 94. So he'll get in, he might get to the 4,000s, but that will be the uh, top of the bottle. So this one's quasi-sports-related, and every now and then I try to remind myself to talk about organ donation. I have a couple of friends who plant that seed in my ears, and there's a new story today that prompted me to bring it up again. And this is about Saskatchewan in particular. We remember back to the tragedy of the Humboldt Broncos, some 16 people killed when their bus hit a semi. There was a young fellow on that team named Logan Boulay. He had signed his organ donation card at the age of 21, and a few weeks later, the crash happened. And because he donated his organs, he saved the lives of some six people. When this became part of the story, there was immediate a massive uptick in that province for people signing up to be organ donors, 150,000 people in the following weeks. So they just set some records in uh, Saskatchewan. 30 deceased donors as of April the 1st, 2022 to March 31st. That was a record, an all-time high in Saskatchewan. There was also 276 patients donated ocular tissue. So they are calling it the Logan Boulay effect. And, you know, I guess it's just one of those conversations that it's awkward to talk about death. Of course it is. But in this province, there are so many thousands of people waiting for an organ donation whether it be organs or tissue or what have you, so you know the process. It's to go through MCP, make your wishes known, and importantly, to sit down with your family to talk about it as well. But six, uh, six lives saved by young Boulay when he tragically lost his life in that bus accident. I don't know. Uh, another quick baseball note. Coming up this weekend, the fourth annual Mike Weist Classic. Twelve fields are going to be hosting the ball players. 51 teams, 11 divisions, 13 female teams. 
If you don't know who Mike Buist is, he was the executive director of St. John's Minor A Baseball for quite a while. He was elected into the Hall of Fame in 2019. He was a real linchpin in minor baseball and the growth of baseball here in the province. So when it kicks off, all the teams before every game will line up down the foul lines for a little moment of silence to remember Mike, honor his commitment to baseball in the area, the fourth annual Mike Wiest Classic, this coming weekend. All right. Read a great story in the Telegram over the weekend. You know, we talk about tourism season and how important it is to have out-of-province visitors and the amount of money they spend. But, of course, staycation has been growing in popularity. People might want to visit all of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites or some parts of the province they've never been to, maybe make your way to Labrador for the first time. But this story on the front page of the Telegram was about basing your staycation around trying to hit every one of the Rifts department stores in the province. It's a great provincial flair to a bit of staycation. There's 18 rifts in the province, including up in Labrador. So if you do indeed take this on, and if you're one of these travelers who is part of this group trying to hit every rifts, it'd be great to have you on. So it'll take you to Clarenville, Grand Falls, Windsor, Twillingate, Lewisport, Marystown, uh, Gander, Springdale, Deer Lake. Uh, after Deer Lake, Bonavista, what else do we got here? St. Anthony, Port Bay Vert, Harbor Breton, Fort Ho, Fogo, Roddington, uh, Channel Port of Basque, St. Albans, and Happy Valley Goose Bay. Imagine hitting all 18 riffs on a summer staycation. Okay, let's get into the numbers. So, the unemployment numbers. Look, it is not bad news. Of course it's not bad news when the unemployment number do- uh, drops to single digits. So, from 10.2 to 8.8, absolutely a good thing. But digging a little deeper still tries to put an emphasis on the requirement of sustained growth. And for the private sector to experience the landscape for growth inside the private sector. We'll get to some public sector numbers now in a moment. So we didn't see, uh, did indeed see an increase uh, of employment, some 2,300 positions last month. And it is a snapshot in time. There's only three provinces in the country saw an increase like that, Ontario, Nova Scotia joining that ranks. But it is important to just dig a little deeper. And this is not to throw cold water on solid unemployment numbers, but a lot of them were part-time. So there was an increase of some 3,000 positions that was indeed part-time. The uh, national unemployment rate is about 5.4%. But then you'd look at labor participation, the active workforce. It shrunk by 1,500 people in June. So the province's participation rate means everyone who's actually working and or looking for work is the lowest in the country at 56.9%. So, again, not to be completely negative about what looks from the outside looking in is very encouraging numbers, it's still important to get down to the brass tacks. And we hear from employers all the time having a hard time, a hard time finding people to work. Some sectors are on a bigger crunch and a bit more pressure than others. But there you go. So the numbers are encouraging, but the numbers don't tell the entirety of the tale. And look, there's massive opportunities to grow. Even if we just look at these wind, hydrogen, ammonia projects, they're talking about thousands upon thousands of jobs, especially during the construction phase. So it's out there. Let's look at jobs on the national front. So since the Trudeau Liberals were elected back in 2015, the public sector has grown by 40%. Spending on the public sector since 2019-2020's fiscal year has increased by 32%. So those are whopping big numbers. The federal public service, there's 357,247 employees. And again, up some 40%. When the Liberals took over, there was 257,000 plus. The question would be, very clearly, is was there that sort of shortage of people working for the federal government? 
Probably not. According to the Parliamentary Budget Office, which I lean on for a lot of deep dive into the numbers, operational spending for the public service has grown steadily, they say, since the 2019-2020 fiscal year, from $87.5 billion to $115.9 billion. About half of the spending is directly related to human resources. So that's an increase from $46.3 billion to $60.7 billion over the same time period. Some departments are growing, including CRA, so a, a swell of some 100, pardon me, 1,517 jobs in 2020, 2021, and another 6,626, 21, 22. Other departments are shrinking, the Department of National Defense in particular. Then they talk about the amount of bonus money we pay to the uh, federal public sector. $200 million in bonuses last year, despite the fact that all kinds of targets were missed. So when you add it all up, people talk about the sovereign debt and how it's going to get paid and whether you can talk about inflation inside the G7 or net debt to a GDP ratio in the G7. The country's in good shape, but those numbers are very real and are worthy of discussion. So that's a 40% increase since 2015 for the numbers of people working in the federal public sector. What do you make of that? And stick with the public, uh, pardon me, the federal government. So much confusion regarding the Online News Act. What it does, what it's intended to do, how, how it could work if, if possible. You know, there are some sectors or some people saying, look, don't blink because we saw what happened in Australia. Maybe the legislation needs to be massaged. And it's all about trying to ensure that the big tech giants actually pay for using locally generated media content. But if that's something of interest to you, we can take it on. And it looks like the Bank of Canada is going to raise its benchmark interest rate again. Depends on who you ask, because if you put a bunch of economists in the room, you're probably going to get a different opinion from most. So there's one CIBC senior economist says that this might not be necessary, and it may indeed be a mistake. When you look at the numbers and people struggling to pay their bills, I heard a report that uh, somewhere in a third of Canadians are a couple hundred bucks away from being unable to pay their bills. Then you factor in what household debt looks like. We're at a record all-time high. So a proportion of household disposable income rose to 184.5% in the first quarter. That's up from 181.7% in the fourth quarter of 2022. What that means is it takes $1.85 in credit market debt for every dollar household disposable income. That's extraordinary and obviously entirely unsustainable. So with the Bank of Canada trying to temper inflation, which has come back to earth since its peak of 8.1%, nearing very close by their target numbers, you wonder the merit or the necessity to jack up the benchmark interest rate again, because no one gets to borrow at the Bank of Canada rate. So, yeah, the pressure that people are feeling, like if you put your key focus on buying food, refilling prescriptions, paying your bills, paying your mortgage, paying your rent, paying your telecom bill, insurance, what have you. This seems like hopefully it will not happen, but it very much looks like the Bank of Canada is going to jack up their interest rate again. Sticking, sticking with federal-related matters, this has been in the works for over two decades, and that's the possibility for a new marine protected area in and around the shores of Burgio. So they're going to go forward with another feasibility study looking at protecting some 9,100 square kilometers of coastline from the western side of La Poil Bay all the way to the eastern side of Bay to Spare. Okay, talking about preservation and the diverse wildlife in the area, it all makes sense. There's a possibility that Sandbanks Provincial Park may indeed become a national park, joining Terra Nova and Gross Morn. Some of the confusion, like you'll still be able to go in, hike, berry pick, hunting, aquaculture, like we talked about in the other protected areas, 
But when you people talk about commercial opportunities, one of the really confusing parts, even in the news story, which I had to read a couple of times to ensure that I was on the right track, is they say things like aquaculture can't proceed. However, when you look at national standards and minimum protection standards, it very much sounds like it will not be fin fish farming available, even though earlier in the news story it says aquaculture will continue to proceed. In the commercial fishery, they'll be allowed in, but of course no bottom trawling, which is absolutely possible with all the gear and the advent of gear inside the fishing industry. So if someone knows more about it than me, and that's probably most of you, which is it? You know, if it's regarding ocean dumping and aquaculture, Earlier in the story, aquaculture is okay, but a new prote marine protected area, and we can talk about protected areas, whether it be WIRAC reports or otherwise, and let's take it on if you're in. Yet another story in the world of the inability or the impossibility for people to try to find a daycare spot. You know, this one comes from a story I read this morning where yet another child, and these are stories that are more common than not, it's about people having their child dismissed from a daycare. I've been in conversation with several families who have experienced the exact same thing. They're not willing to put their laundry into the, the media cycle, but it's happening more often than not. So I'll leave this particular family out of it, but their four-year-old, with no warning, no incident reports, they call an emergency meeting at the daycare, and the young fella has been dismissed. So when we know... That $10 a day just really sounds good, a feel-good number regarding affordability, but accessibility, we're not there. There's only enough regulated daycare spaces in the province for 14% of the children of daycare or early childhood education age. Now, whether it be the newly announced pay grade for early childhood educators and what that might mean to bring some back into the fold, encourage others to join the ranks, we're nowhere near where we need to be. But in this specific case... You know, this young fella, this is a new daycare to him. He was not enrolled in the inclusion program, which needs a support worker, because that wasn't the case. So they point to things like he cried a lot when dropped off. Pretty natural stuff. And I would suggest probably in the early days, hard around the parents than it is on the kids. Then refusing to get dressed to go outdoors and stuff. We're talking about a four-year-old. This is some pretty common stuff. So no, no heads up, no incident reports. And this family, and to add complication to it, the mom is a nurse and maybe not unable to return to her nursing job when they are unable to find a daycare and her time off uh, comes to an end. So daycare is a massive big issue. Just think about it. Only enough regulated spaces, and there are unregulated spaces, I totally understand. And there's more to it than, you know, there's homes that take in people and Nan and Pop are doing some daycare. But 14% really seems like a pretty low number. We'll have to keep a close eye on how quickly we, we move ahead on that front. A couple of quickies. How are we doing on the telephone this morning, Fonts? Let's get it going. I can't talk all day. I'll sore throat. Whether it be in housing or food, I heard an interview with Jody Williams at Bridges to Hope. 30% of his clientele accessing the food bank are children. I mean, that's a staggering number. And it only gets worse in the summertime when so many young people, their legitimate opportunity for a reasonable, healthy meal comes from Kids Eat Smarter, the School Lunch Association. Jody calls it a crisis, and he's 100% right. He's 100% right that the issues regarding food, and we can take on food from every angle. You know I like to talk about it because it's a problem for so many people in the country and certainly here in this province. All right, just a couple more I wanted to get to, but I'll hold those off for a bit. But And see the story? 
Buddy cock going 169 kilometers an hour in the 90 zone. Yes, a ticket. Yes, vehicle impounded. But it never seems to me that the omnipresent danger that people like that guy present, because it could be me or you on the road, could be someone belong to us, could be a friend of ours, come upon a car absolutely out of control, going at breakneck pace, that any adjustment to their path means there's going to be some devastation. So anyway, I don't know what the punishment should be, but should be more than what we generally experience. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. But let's have a great show. That means you have to join us in the queue. So do exactly that during this break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, top of the board. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I want to start off by wishing all our provincial municipal public uh, servants a belated happy Orange Men's Day. Uh, I never heard you yesterday. I'm sure you probably did the same thing. No. No, okay. I'm not an Orange Men's uh, Day, Orange Men's Day kind of guy. I'm, I'm sure many many of them gathered today to celebrate the Battle of the Boyne, which took place uh, in what is now the Republic of Ireland in 1690. Celebrates the Protestant King William of Orange's victory over Catholic King James II. That was a pivotal moment for the Protestant cause. And it's a public holiday, only two places, Northern Ireland and, uh, of course, here in the Flannel Labrador. And I, I want to kind of overlay that on top of the concept of the four-day work week and kind of open ourselves up to that discussion. I know you, you bring it up every once in a while for discussion, so sure. I thought I'd kind of engage in it. And, you know, I guess the concept is that if people have, you know, more time off, have, uh, have you know, longer, you know, a bunch of long weekends, if they have every every week is a four-day week, then, uh, then it should make them more productive according to studies that were done in Scandinavia and in the U.K., and, and I feel like we've done large-scale tests of that already in this province with our public service. They have 15 long weekends. It's not a public service issue that when I bring it up. That's not it at all. I know that's where you like to go, but we're talking private sector, what it means for burnout, productivity, efficiency, uh, retention. It's not a public sector conversation to me. No, it isn't. But, of course, I mean, I think you can argue that people are people. So, you know, those things you just indicated, burnout, um, obviously still exists in the public service to a great deal. And um, and I'm not so sure that, that how long people work. I mean, already, we've, you know, they have 15 of those days. They have three to six weeks of holidays. They have their sick leave. Um, they also, many during the summer, get shortened uh, weeks, regardless, even during the pandemic when our health care was in disarray and many hadn't worked the healthcare still went to shorten days, the ones that actually receive it, half hour less per day. So that's 3.5 hours for 12 weeks. That's an extra 42 hours off. So that's another 5.5 days off. And, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that in a province like ours, um, you know, that is indicative of how other people would also adjust and, and, and normalize. You know, in the beginning for everything, especially when it's a study, People are going to obviously. You'll see a bump, um, but I mean, I really, when you when you look at it over time, I I'm sure people would not argue 
that all this extra time compared to what the private sector gets has resulted in a more productive uh, and probably uh, less stressed out public service if you listen to the ongoing challenges that we but have. there's different measures, though, right? I, I know that this is the angle that you like to take, and so be it. It's your call, your dime. But when we talk about the private sector and measures for productivity and accountability for, it's just a different kettle of fish. It just is for a variety of reasons. And let's be honest, there's lots of people who will be going to work uh, a 40-hour work week, and how much of those 40 hours in the office is spent being productive? Canada's long had a productivity problem, but I mean, whether it be playing solitaire or checking your Facebook or daydreaming or just kind of surfing the internet or whatever, people do it. It's a natural approach unless you're up to your neck and have to hit a bunch of targets and deadlines, which is a little bit different once again in the private sector versus the public sector. But every time it's been tried. I know people are resistant because they think, well, we already have a lazy problem, so let's not further exacerbate a lazy problem with meaning you only have to work four days a week. It doesn't work for everybody. Like the story here locally was a marketing company. It could work for them. Can it work for us? Absolutely not. We're seven days a week, 24 hours a day operation. So it doesn't mean it can work for every industry, every business, every organization. But when it's been tried, the results are pretty clear. Whether it be in the UK, which I think is a good one, 61 companies, almost 3,000 employees, the burnout numbers went down, fewer sick days, productivity increased, revenue increased, uh, profitability increased. I don't know how that would be a bad thing. If I ran an organization that I thought it might work for us because we have the ability to try it out, I'd be doing it for sure. Yeah, and maybe you're right in in a in in a group of I guess high performing people. But whenever you're looking at public policy or or broad based things, you have to consider what the impact might be longer term. I mean, getting back to the public service, you know, most people in the public service, their job is really, really, really important, way more important than a marketing company's job. So so human nature should dictate that when you know that what you're doing is impacting directly the health and safety of um, the people around you, your friends, your family, your communities. That's an ultimate motivator. So you would think that would bring out the greatest productivity in people, you know, especially when you throw in the same, that same metric, which is, okay, we're going to give them, try and create, you know, earlier, you know, they can retire earlier. They have more benefits. They have more days off. All I'm saying to you is, you know, yes, it may work in high performing places uh, or uh, industries. It may work in cultures that maybe have a greater um, cultural uh, view of work. In other words, you know, there are, Lots of places in the world. Germany is one place where, um, you know, it's stereotypically, but also actually a fact that they they just have a higher uh, work ethic, for lack of a better word. It's it's not culturally it's not as culturally acceptable to be underemployed or to be seasonally employed, or you know, back in the day when Newfoundland Labrador, when it was frowned upon, and, and definitely not something that people would do easily, which would be to um, not work and take some sort of check for not working you know that would there's families who would to their to to their detriment would for pride reasons almost starve to death rather than take the government dole i'm not saying that's correct or, or appropriate but but when the culture gets to the point where it's very acceptable as i would argue it is in many parts of newfoundland and labrador it's, it's a dangerous thing to talk about as if it's i mean it's okay to talk about academically but i believe you know you can see the impacts of a lot of these social programs on a fairly significant proportion of the population when you look at, for example, which you talked about in your preamble, participation rate, labor participation rate. And, you know, you have to draw a straight line between labor participation rate, ours being 56% and 
Canada's being 65%, and, I'm, and I don't know the numbers for other countries in the world, but you definitely got to overlay that in the analysis when you talk about four-day work week, in my opinion. Yeah, but you're taking it somewhere that I've never even thought of. This is not about public policy to me. This is about whether or not individual companies, given what they see with their own employees, if it can work, what would be the outcome of and every time you look at it, Microsoft's operations in Asia, in the UK, uh, the fact that it's happened in Scandinavia, and what the results have been, it just seems undeniable. And again, I don't even know how many times I have to say this. It's not about every single company. It's not about the government telling every single company, now your employees will enjoy a four-day work week, figure it out. It's just whether or not it might work for someone. I know a couple of companies that are doing it, and it seems to be working. So like, if, once again, if I'm in charge and I'm signing the front of the checks, if the work's getting done, my turnover rate decreases, productivity goes up, profitability and revenue go up at the same time, fewer sick days, I'm giving it some careful consideration. And I'm not talking about the province or the federal government saying, here it comes, companies, you've got to figure it out now. I'm just saying individually, what might it look like? Because it seems to work. It's, uh, it's counterintuitive. And if we had a productivity problem and a potential lazy problem in certain corners of the country, this sounds like the worst idea ever. But it seems to work. I don't necessarily understand why. You know, burnout is real. When you're burnt out, it's not only about leaving and looking for another job. Burnout absolutely impacts your efficiency, productivity, your contentment with your job. And that's all bad. That's bad for the boss. That's bad for the owners. That's bad for the stakeholders or shareholders. I mean, indeed it is. However, a lot of times we allow work to take the lion's share of the blame for people's burnout when, in fact, we know, you know, personalized social social media, uh, addictions, um, health, physical health, you know, either unintended or, or directly just from poor lifestyle choices um, is major, much more. If you look at, you know, breakdowns in marriages or whatever else, like a lot of times we don't allow, or trauma, childhood trauma, for example, um, we don't allow those, those things to bleed into the analysis. We allow it to make it all about the work when if someone has made a good choice, relatively speaking, and they're working in an environment that is, that is somewhat positive, which hopefully all of us work, especially private public sector work really hard to create those environments. Then you, you know, it, it isn't really fair for work to get the blame. I mean, many people go to work and that's most in their lives. That's probably the best part of their life, uh, but that doesn't get talked about enough. And, but I, you know, I just, I just feel like less work for a lot of people is negative working from home for a lot of people who need that social interaction, who need that connection. Like, like all these things are very complicated, but I, I really believe um, we oversimplify them and we allow... Or we overcomplicate them. You don't have to work four days. You can work five days. You can work six days. That's one of the flexibility issues. If someone needs the respite of work and it's their getaway, it's where they're happier, then there's no, one, no one's telling them you can't go to the office. It's no, open. And they have a floating target. You know, like some of the operations that are uh, doing it on the four-day schedule per week, they're open five days a week. Some people will take Monday, some might take the Wednesday, some might take the Friday. It's not about a one-size cookie cutter. And like Tony says, that uh, issues, in, he's in the transportation industry. They couldn't do it. Of course they couldn't do it. We couldn't do it. Healthcare can't do it. There's lots of places where it's absolutely impossible, others where it's entirely available, whether it be remote work, four-day week, summer flex schedules. You know, and you're saying that work might be uh, getting the unfair blame for some of this burnout-related matter, but for employers... They, their ultimate control over how you feel, how you produce, is at the workplace. They're not marriage counselors. You know, they're not financial advisors. They're employers. 
Well, when, when a lot of these times we're having these discussions, I mean, I drill down to the fact that the people we hear in the radio, in, on the radio, in the media, who are burned out and who have these work-life challenges, they're the public sector employees, our public sector employees. So when I drill down this, because they are our biggest expense, they are also our biggest asset. They're the ones who do all the work that we rely on to keep us healthy and to educate our, our children. But when we allow the public discourse to follow the lines of, um, you know, working less is, is better and and retiring earlier is better. And, uh, you know, and that, that we need to focus on that. We, we, we derail the concept of the fact that work should be a very fulfilling part of a, of a balanced and wholesome contributing life. And I don't think we hear enough of that and we don't hear enough about all the positives and we allow it to be demonized and that costs us money. And not only does it cost us money, it, it creates a culture and an environment where people leave the workforce. They retire early because they can. And that all of us are left suffering and paying more money because with less people in the market, there's greater competition on wages. And therefore, we have to pay nurses, for example, like they're going to get 18% raise in this negotiations now. And that's a lot of money. And when you juxtapose that fact that it's not just nurses are going to get it, everybody upstream from them are going to get it. Everybody else parallel are getting it, doctors, everybody's getting it. And when we spend $4 billion, and if we're going to increase that by 18%, well, that's going to bring it up to, you know, $480 million, sorry, $4.8 billion. That $800 million, there's no place for that to come from. There's no magic oil in the future that's going to pay for that. So, like, all these things are important, and we allow the public discourse to be, you know, supporting that view that work is not, like, really important, and that's your major contribution for a lot of people. I mean, family, work, you know, that's the two main contributions you probably make in your life, really, and volunteerism, of course. And we don't I – mean, we just – we allow – we diminish it, and that costs us money, but also is eroding and destroying our society and the things we all get up every day that we expect to be there, like uh, an emergency room in Whitburn or Bell Island or wherever else. And that's all because we're allowing, not just provincially, because of course it's a national, pretty international problem, but we're allowing it to be all about money and we're not focusing enough on work-life fulfillment. And you know, and every time I hear it, I just cringe because I can see the consequences. Nobody can see the consequences because you know the workforce is shrinking in the places we need it the most. And we're trying to throw more and more money into that hole. And there is not enough money in Newfoundland and Labrador to fill that hole if we don't change the culture and how we look at work. Yeah, that, all that money, you're, you're, you're hyper-focused on the public sector, and so be it. But four-day work week has nothing to do with the public sector. It, it just doesn't. It's not even part of the conversation. It's about private sector employers, what they're doing to prob- hopefully improve the lot of life for their company and their employees. It's not about the public sector at all. No one's suggesting that the public sector moves off to a four-day work week. I certainly have never done it. Well, well, I, you you missed my point because at the end of the day, if in if in our culture and if our society, our economy, the goal is to work less. If that is the goal, to work less and less and less to a point where now we're down to four days. I mean, it used to be to work seven days. That was crazy. Then they worked six days. You know, that was where religion came in, give you a day of rest. So six days, and now then we're down to five. Well, five is not even full five because at one point it was twelve hour days. Now we're down to you know. 37.5 or whatever some magic hours is that people work. And now we're going to go down to four days. And, and it's like it's like work and, and the reason, you know, it isn't all about moving widgets or rocks across, back and forth across a road, but a lot of jobs in society. And I focus on the public service because that is the thing that these are the most powerful people. And we're at, we're at their behest. Like, like, like ultimately we are all dancing to the strings that they're, that, you know, we're just marionettes and we go to work every day. A lot of us, to generate the money so the taxes can be sucked out of us every which way they can be 
to pay for that, those public services. And and it's important that we don't ever forget that. Like, you talk about four-day work weeks. A lot of times I'm not even sure how important, you know, that matters. A small number of companies that that would work for, it derails the fact that why are we even talking about working less? Like, maybe we should work about working smarter is important. Sure. But, but well, really that's, that's the work. essence of a four-day work week is working smarter. Working hard is – I almost said something that I didn't mean to say. Uh, anyway, off I go to the break, Tom. Appreciate your time. Okay. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah, I mean – Working smarter versus working harder sounds like a pretty solid approach to me. Anyway, let's take a break. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number two. Billy, you're on the air. Morning. Morning to you. How are you today? That's kind, man. You? Good. I gotta, uh, I'm using you as an excuse now to sit down. I'm sweating like a bull and getting eaten by black flies. Uh, what, what, what part of the province are you calling from? Uh, Long Harbor. Okay. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Uh, I'm just, uh, I was listening to Tom there now, and uh, I'm coming in unarmed and unstudied for this conversation, so beat me up as you like. No need. Uh but uh, it, 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 he was speaking from like a public sector point of view, and I'm sitting here now. I'm trying. I, I'm, I, I'm starting a new business because I'm a, a kind of a jaded by the workforce in certain ways these days. Or I can buy a plane ticket and, and pack a suitcase and do what I always done and find a big uh, job on a construction site. Okay. But he was speaking from like a public sector perspective, and I mean that. That needs a, an entire revamping. They're always to say best is like uh, there's no employee problems, there's management problems. Fair enough. And uh, I, I was I was just listening. To it. it was like, uh, you know what? We reward the hard workers absolutely a hundred percent. And uh, you were talking about the work from home works here, works there. I spent a year previous working for uh, uh, working from home uh, during the COVID days and whatnot, and. Uh, it, it worked for me, but I understand people who go into the office because it's like a social function for me. I, I don't go to work to make friends, right? Well, and, like for me, I was able to come into the studio uh, throughout the pandemic, and it's lucky for me because I could not have done it from home. I cannot have my home be my place of work, so there's never anywhere to escape. So I felt really lucky to come into the studio every day, to be honest. Remote work wouldn't work for me. I'm just not built I, for it. I, I get it, and one of my favorite people at the, the job that I was working at uh, for, from home, uh, she she was saying things. She was like, "This this is this is I have to go to the office because uh, I, I couldn't do it from home." But uh, some some can, and like you said, there's uh, four. So the the Norwegians are doing four day work weeks, et cetera, et cetera. When I was working from home, it was almost. It was pretty much seven days a week. Uh, some days, uh, I, I know at the whenever every week when I submitted a timesheet, I worked more hours than uh, than, than I uh, was paid for and whatnot, and I, I put my effort in. But it, it comes down to individuals, and it's uh, it, it's and the times are changing, and that, that that's the the prerogative that most people miss. Is is like it used to be. It don't matter what you do, son. Uh, work hard, and you'll do all right. These these days, every dollar you you earn is uh, is scrutinized, and is, 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 whatever the government can take from you, they, they do it. 
And uh, it's really hard to earn an honest living these days. I mean, people can't even afford houses or vehicles, let alone houses. Well, I mean, I, I think one of the points you make there that times are changing. They absolutely are, and not necessarily for the best if you look at things like housing and transportation, what have you. Canadians earning a median income haven't been able to afford a home in a couple of decades. I mean, there's something patently wrong with that. You know, people look to days gone by where you could have the husband and wife in the traditional setup of a family, husband and wife and a couple of kids. Mom may indeed stay home. Dad has a job at the phone company, but they're able to afford a house and a car, but you can't anymore. Well, when forty-five thousand dollars a year was the, was the annual salary, a house was seventeen thousand dollars. Yes, but you even know? if you extrapolate for inflation and whatever other impacts or variables, you're still completely unable in that sort of setup it's, in a four-person family to afford those types of things. It just can't agree, be done. We we agree a hundred percent that that's exactly it. The the fractions just don't work out. Nope. And uh, it, it's so it, it, uh, speaking from uh, a public cent- uh, sector mind, as, as Tom, uh, I think it was Tom, was uh, w- was doing, is like, you know what? Yes, it, I get the you, the hardworking people and whatnot, but like, uh, I mean, no, we've spoken before. There's no secret. I'm anti-government anyway. It's like I think that the whole system should be wiped out and started over again. <laughs> oh, I, did, I absolutely, and and a lot of it is like good. I've heard you say it more than once. It's like all these uh, people that run for office and whatnot, uh, uh, the large percentage of them go in with with the best of intentions and is the bureaucracy. The, these people that are 40-year jobs that got the system figured out right down to a T uh, 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 and it's only protectionism. Uh, uh, and it's, 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 it's okay until you start messing my stuff. Yeah, I don't know how, (laughs) I'm not regretting bringing anything up, but uh, when I say four-day work week, I mean one thing. It might be heard differently in other people's ears. I'm fair enough, you know, whatever the conversation starter is or what it looks like, that's fine with me. Like, just as an example, and remote work or four-day work week, whatever people want to latch onto, a couple of people that are good friends of mine that I've known for decades, and they're professionals. And since the pandemic started and they were working from home and it works for them, they're fine with it. Again, it doesn't work for me, but some of them, they're never going back to the office. Maybe every now and then for a team meeting face-to-face. So a couple of guys like in the financial services industry, they're having their best years ever. Working from home, Mm. visiting clients in their own home. They've totally changed the way that they approach their job. And as a result, they're happier, making more money, hitting the targets. The bosses are happy with them. So, again, it might work for him. doesn't work for me. It won't work in the construction industry. It won't work in the trucking industry. But it won't work in whatever type of business, whatever services or marketing or whatever. That's, you know, I talk about general. We kind of concur. And, and like, uh, I I, I was a self-employed contractor most of my career, and I, 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 I was that close to becoming a company man i, I was like I, I was ready to put on a tattoo and wear the colors and uh, uh, and then the the growth happened and it was like oh okay and then then it became uh, a more shareholder thing so moved on and went to another construction site and it's just i'm i'm, I'm just getting uh, too old and uh and in, 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 it's like so. I'm going into business for myself. I'm absolutely doing it because it's it's 
um, I don't. We've moved to this stage where the majority of people are working to make ends meet in in roles that make them miserable, and and, and it's it's like it's you're gold that way, and and then not only that, you're taxed a debt for it if you if you do either bit well. And it, it just gets so frustrating. And then you look at these public sector. Don't get me wrong, the, 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 the doctors, nurses, uh, 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 so, so, some of the, uh, the the government provided services, absolutely. But uh, I mean, we could go deep into the tax uh, the, the scheme of things. It's like uh, all our tax dollars is like every every year when I when I file my taxes. I should be able to say, okay, well, I paid this much in tax on this, so this is related to this, so this tax dollar should go to this. But it's not, of course, we don't get to count our tax dollars. No, we don't. Uh, appreciate the uh, time this morning, Billy. Anything else you want to say? No, not a thing, unless you uh, unless you want to finish mowing for me. <laughs> I got to mow my own moss and weeds. Cheers, Dave. thanks, Billy. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. And another fair question coming in from a listener about, you know, the whole concept. And look, we can switch gears and talk about whatever you like. The the move that some companies have made to uh, four-day work weeks, you know, some of them are working eight and a half hours. Some of them now have taken a 30-minute lunch versus a one-hour lunch. There's way different ways. It's not a cookie cutter. There's just simply not that. Companies are doing it different ways. And let's just, once again, be realistic here. When you talk about how many hours a week people work, I don't know what it's like for you. But I guarantee you, I put in more than 40. I mean, just think about what we do after supper. You get cleaned up, what do you do then? Check in on your email. How many people are putting in time on the weekends, in the evenings, and it's not reflected in their, you know, punching their time card at work. It's just what we think is required. And you don't want to be that employee that at 4.30, 5 o'clock when you go home, you're unreachable, you're not doing anything, versus some of the real go-getters that might be working alongside you in the company who are available all day long, returning emails at 11.30 at night, those types of things. People feel those pressures. That doesn't get factored in. So when you talk about burnout, it's more than just whatever happens in your, if you're one of those 9 to 5 type of workers, because like when I go home from here, it's not the end of the day. That much I can guarantee. And I would, I would imagine it's very similar for most people who are working and listening this morning. It's not game over when the buzzer goes or the whistle goes. It's never ending. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. The topic, when we come back, let's switch gears and talk about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, I suppose it's time for that daily reminder that it doesn't matter if I brought up the subject, if it's something you want to talk about, fair enough. And during the break, one of the emails say, how come we're not talking about the ongoing NATO meetings? Hey, let's do it. So one of the significant issues yesterday is that there was some sort of breakthrough that Turkey has agreed to stop blocking Sweden's bid to join the defense alliance. Then you talk about the timing and whether or not there's going to be a full membership of NATO offered to Ukraine. Look, whatever you want to talk about in that front, we can absolutely do. But where some of the conversation gets, I don't know if it's dangerous is the right, right word or what have you, is if indeed 
Ukraine became a part of NATO during this conflict, what does that actually mean for what people call Article 5? What is Article 5? You know, an act of war against one is an act of war against all. Of course, we hear an awful lot about that kind of stuff. Very little talk about how this comes to an end, which is really lost in the conversation. Where are the off-ramps? How does this come to a conclusion? And what that looks like, I have no idea. The world wasn't really ready for a Putin-led Russia, certainly absolutely not ready for a post-Putin Russia, which could be as bad or worse. But inside that envelope, and we talked about the amount of money spent on public sector operations, public sector remuneration packages, and people will point to how much money is going out the door to Ukraine. Okay, so the estimates between weaponry and in-kind and other materials and goods and services and help, the number is around $8 billion, which is nothing to sneeze at. And people will say, you know, well, how about all the needs right here in the country and how about all that money going to Ukraine? Okay. Here's where I think those numbers don't get included as well, though, is part of the conversation long has been about Canada's defense spending and the commitment to NATO spend uh, 2% on defense. And we're nowhere near it. I think it's at 1.29%, so there's massive room to grow. But what I don't think people have uh, talked about at those high levels is what the definition of defense spending means anymore. For instance, would any of the monies spent to aid another country as opposed to simply invest in whether it be F-35 uh, fighter jets and or other munitions or weaponry, does that many constitute defense spending? It kind of means it to me. When are we going to change our tune from all the wars being fought in the sky and in the trenches and on the fields or on the meadows or on the beaches to where a lot of it's being fought right now is online? And cybersecurity is actually a major part of defense. So, you know, it's time I think these people at the very helms of elected uh, official status start expanding conversation about what defense spending actually means. But if that's a topic that you think is important, NATO, the future of NATO, the growth inside of NATO, and or money's flowing from this country and every member of NATO to Ukraine, happy to talk about it however you slice it. And then when we talk about public sector numbers, if this is not an us versus them type of issue. This is straight brass tacks about numbers and how the numbers have increased, especially on the federal level. It's a fair question as far as I'm concerned to ask, was there an actual need, a legitimate need, to increase the public sector workforce some 40% since 2015? It's costing pretty significant money, as itemized off the top of the show. This doesn't mean that all the 21,000 federal workers that were hired last year are absolutely of no value. It's legitimately, is there a need for every single person that's working in the public sector? You know, the private sector, there's evaluations about what right-sizing means, and sometimes companies through simply the need to increase dividends to their shareholders or jack up their profits will indeed run with a, uh, a real skeleton crew. And that's questionable for many people when we look at how the economy actually works these days. But it doesn't make anybody a bad person. I'm not saying that, hey, the 98,268 people that have been hired by the federal government since Trudeau was elected in 2015, they all need to be fired. No. And, of course, there's some attrition that goes along with those numbers. But the spending and the increase in spending is undeniable. Some of it, it's hard to factor in what pandemic support spending really, truly means. You know, the programs that were created so quickly without required oversight and monitoring, some of those numbers are problematic. I don't think anyone can argue that. But the other side of that conversation is, what would it have looked like for individuals and businesses if there weren't some of these types of support programs in place? 
economic recovery if we had so many more people out of job so many more businesses that have gone completely by the wayside no longer exist the way and the path to economic recovery would have been extremely difficult probably way worse than we're looking at now and yes sovereign debt levels someone will eventually see the piper come calling and bills must be paid same thing here on the provincial level and let's take it on what's one more with the feds just pops in my mind is you know while we look for opportunities here for private sector growth whether it be in some of these wind projects or the mining opportunities where are which are expansive and extremely lucrative is some of the conversations they grab headlines for a couple of days and then they're gone and it's not that long ago where we were being told that we play some sort of role in this whatever the atlantic loop means then in the most recent federal budget the province was not mentioned specifically it what very much felt like a maritime loop but of course with our hydro assets there's no way for them to proceed with the kind of markets they're trying to satisfy without us so the federal government at that point they announced that it was a thing then they told us that they had to do more due diligence now we understand that some two-thirds of the forecast of potential $6.5 billion cost will be absorbed by the federal government, some $4.5 billion, that now it's somehow, in some form, back on track. But no one, including the minister, uh, Dominic LeBlanc, has really spelled out a little bit clearer terms exactly what it means. You know, who builds it, who owns it, where are the tariffs or the levies, where's the market for the power? what that means for Muskrat, what that means for Gull, what it means for the Upper Churchill, what it means for 2041, we don't really know. And importantly, look, I don't expect the province to show its cards in full, talking with the province of Quebec regarding the implications of 2041, and maybe the 17 years between now and then. But we struck a provincial committee that was only there to talk about what that actually meant, what 41 really meant. Some people see it as the golden egg, it's the panacea, when I don't think that's the actual reality so I for the life of me can understand because it's not like the province of Quebec doesn't understand what 2041 means so how we haven't had an opportunity to hear from some of those committee members or the minister Andrew Parsons about what we should be thinking about and what is actually going to happen in 2041 because at this moment it's all just this fictitious maybe unicorn that some people think well our troubles are over regarding energy and profits from energy come 2041 because the province of Quebec and Hydro-Quebec will still own a percentage of it. It's just how much money we'll get per megawatt generated and sold on the market. And make no mistake, Quebec needs the implications of, 20, uh, pardon me, the Upper Churchill. Some 15% of their energy portfolio comes from that dam. So we do, for the first time ever, maybe probably hold some cards, a bit more of an advantageous position than we found ourselves in years past with the seven core challenges about good faith. And yes, there will be a portion of society thinks shag Quebec. You know, everything to do with Quebec should be absolutely sidelined or shelled forevermore. But the fact of the matter is, geographically speaking, we have no choice. With mining opportunities in Labrador Trough, we have no choice. When it comes to hydro and the upper Churchill, we have no choice. It's just kind of baked in. Doesn't make it good, bad, or indifferent. Just makes it part of the conversation. All right, check on Twitter before we get to the news. We're VOSM Open Line. You can follow us there. Uh, regarding the Ukraine and the uh, off-ramps to bring this to some sort of end, some people think we're in the throes of WW3. Let's really not hope so. Uh, let's hope that's not the case. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of time to talk with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. 
Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line two. Charlie, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I was just uh, doing some news from Canada as well as the States, and just a little snapshot of few, uh, some things happening uh, at the moment regarding uh, weather. Mm-hmm. One in particular was, I, ca- I thought, kind of alarming. In B.C., they were reporting over 320 fires, uh, mainly caused by drought and then lightning, of course, getting the thing going. And uh, they showed a place in Vermont, they showed a snapshot of it before the uh, the flood and then after, and uh, the houses along completely, uh, completely flooded out and... Uh, the amount of water, I think they said nine inches in in 24 hours. And then they went on to uh, uh, California, 110 degrees in Arizona for the 10th day in a row. And they dealt with Florida. The Florida one I, I thought was uh, significant. Get this for ocean temperatures. This is in Fahrenheit now. Ocean temperatures off Florida are in the 92 to 96 range. Uh, an hot tub, as a comparison, would have about a hundred, right? In the and the normal average that, is around eighty-seven. Yes, mm-hmm. so that's a, that's how high it is. In uh, the Coachella Valley in uh, California, one hundred and twenty, and so. On. Well, what we predicted years ago, many predicted, me included, was uh, a life of misery coming up uh, all over the globe. Uh, Port of Basque, of course, experienced in Bernal's and these places, uh, some of our uh, uh, examples are here. And it always amazes me. I was I was playing Scrabble with a guy in, 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 in Texas where they're getting extreme heat there. I said, what do you think is happening down there? Uh, he said, oh, I, I, it's natural cycles. Uh, it, it'll, it, it'll come and go. And uh, I said, you don't think there's anything happening with man-made uh, gases in the atmosphere? Uh, he didn't think so, no, man-made cycles. So, and you get, of course, those coming in on, 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 on your program, downplaying it and playing up uh, fossil fuels and so on. It just makes me wonder how after about 30 years of, of uh, warnings of uh, red alerts and so on, you can get a large portion of the population on Earth who can simply uh, shrug their shoulders, of course, until it happens to them directly, that they can't see what's happening. Uh, as an example of feedback, when, 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 when the ice goes in, in, in the Arctic, uh, you've got uh, less uh, reflection of uh, heat, yeah, sun's rays back into the atmosphere. You've got more absorption from the water. When the permafrost goes, of course, you get the release of gas. All these feedback loops uh, that that you get more drought, more more uh, more fires, and so on. I don't know what world people live in. I often say a lot of people live in a bubble. It just uh, shocks me that we can go on as if it's business as usual and ho hum. 
you want to comment on any of this? Sure. Okay, okay. Just, you know, in the whole world of the messaging issue, for some, they've been told that the situation is dire and the end is nigh for decades, and consequently, because the end hasn't actually happened as if it's going to be some sort of doomsday issue where overnight you wake up the next morning and everything is gone, I don't think that's what people mean, but that's how it's been heard, and I don't think that's necessarily been helpful. Ringing the alarm bell is important, but how you say what you mean to say is equally important, and I think it's kind of gotten away from some folks. When it comes to the industrial age and man's contribution and what that means, you know, you can take it from Charlie or you can take it from me or you can dismiss us both, but the two industries that are very vocal on this and should be paid attention to are, number one, the insurance companies because they see what's happening, and number two, and this is the key, if the oil and gas companies under oath in front of the American Senate Committee to talk about the implications of fossil fuels and emissions from fossil fuels and their contribution to climate change, they've admitted it the quiet part out loud. Like, I don't know what else anybody needs to be told here. They had models in hand decades ago talking about exactly what increased production would mean based on increased population of the planet, what those emissions would add up to, what the implications would be in the oceans and on the land. They said they knew. They've admitted it under oath. So if the oil and gas companies are willing to admit it under oath, then that's kind of the end of the story for me. If Even in the scientific community, consensus is a tricky piece of business too because there's no group of scientists where 100% agree on anything. But in general terms, consensus on this issue is that the scientific consensus is very much akin to evolution, plate tectonics. That's two pretty key areas where they've figured it out, scientifically speaking, so people can reject it all they like. It doesn't mean that if you acknowledge it, then all of a sudden you are 100% boisterous in support of carbon tax and what that means for implications at the grocery store or at the pump. That's not what it means at all. It means that we have to figure it out, whether it be technology, and carbon capture is not all the same, so whether it be... You know, clean tech manufacturing tax credits and or carbon tax and or clean fuel regulations and or innovation and technology. We sometimes just use the conversation as one thing and one thing only. Okay, climate change, carbon tax. It doesn't have to mean just that. But that's where the conversation has gone. You know, sometimes the reductive thinking is easy and it might lead, uh, might be akin to your own political ideology. But the conversation is bigger than that. And it, it simply is. So again, if the oil companies have admitted it, and they have, then what else does anybody need to know? Well, I see in Newfoundland, I think, as I said before, it'll be a migration from, from western parts of the country to here. But I see our, 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 our prime uh, resource, the fishery, if we get the warming of the water that's predicted, as far as cod and capelin and species that uh, kind of like the cool water, I can see that's what it's going to take for a one hand Newfoundland, but can you imagine the misery that uh, 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 that will bring? How about a few more Igors for those people who, who remember that? And, uh, of course, Portabasca and Southwest Coast recently. I just find it frustrating that, because uh, I've been talking this since the 90s when scientists uh, were very clear in what was going to happen. Nobody, nobody's predicting the end of the world. What we're predicting is misery, misery untold, migration. We we think migration is bad now. We're going to get a, a swarm of people 
trying to get into Europe and the States, Canada as well. Uh, and that's that's going to create its own kind of uh, uh, strife. And so anyway, I guess I'll leave it at that. But to anybody who thinks that this is not happening and it's natural cycles, I would suggest you uh, keep burying your head in the sand. And one of these days, maybe you'll be the one fluttered out. But anyway, I'll leave it at that. Appreciate the time. Okay, sir. Thanks, Charlie. Bye-bye. And again, <clears throat> sometimes, you know, even talking about these types of conversations is that immediately some people will just 100% say it's all fear-mongering. You know, talking about what's happening doesn't have to be heard as fear-mongering. Whether it be issues regarding cancer or viruses or climate change or whatever it is you want to factor in or gun violence, whatever it is, when people talk about, you know, collected data and numbers and realities, it's not, hey, you must be afraid, and please be afraid right now, and here's why you should be afraid. Because I've kind of run my course with, you know, being told, especially by politicians, exactly what I should be afraid of versus what we can do about it, and they're two distinctly different things. So anyone who talks about wildfires, and yes, there's long been wildfires, and yes, there's long been people lighting wildfires, but like, for instance, this year, we're already at 11 times the 10-year average on the amount of land burned in this wildfire season, and we're nowhere near the end. You know, what are all the reasons and factors inside of those numbers? Let's talk about them. So it's not, hey, please be afraid. And if you acknowledge climate change and man's contribution, which is a significant role in, it doesn't mean that you are all in for a carbon tax. You know, that's, unfortunately, the conversation become very, very short because there's, you know, they're complicated. I don't pretend to understand all the complexities and the nuances and the differences between how we address it, where the solutions might lie. But it's hard to get to those types of conversations because they end very quickly. It's similar to immigration, for instance. You know, if you have questions about immigration, some people are very quick to say, you're a racist. But if you're talking about immigration and housing and immigration and health care and immigration and safety and security and vetting, then these are all parts of it. You know, and attracting skilled trades versus the uh, refugee model and the different silos of which there are four for immigration, they have not changed over the years from the conservatives to the liberals. What's changed is the numbers of people that the government is willing to accept or wanting to accept or actively looking to accept. And in the world of immigration, I've got this one guy, he picks at me all the time with some of the funniest stuff. He says, you know, why are we so intent on immigration targets when, in fact, they'll have to get here via boat or uh, or plane, and he says, how can you be interested in talking about climate change and still pro-immigration? Really? I mean, y you can't make this stuff up, right? So the, the conversations just need to be expanded just a little tiny bit. And again, whenever I talk about any of these issues, it's not about being afraid. It's just about who actually has some good ideas. Because make no mistake, whichever party or individual you support, I can guarantee you they don't have all the answers. They just don't. It's as clear as the nose on your face. doesn't matter if you're an NDP supporter or a liberal or a conservative or a rhino party or the marijuana party. Nobody inside your party or your party at large has all the answers. They simply do not. So good ideas are good ideas as far as I'm concerned. And maybe we can talk about some of those. But no need to be afraid, just need to be mindful. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line 
on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Oh, I want to speak about global warming. Sure. I just wanted to let you know that global warming is uh, spoke about many times in the Bible. There's many references to global warming there, and I got all the chapters and the statements talking about global warming. And if anybody wanted to uh, ask me, you know, what where is that in the Bible, I could tell them where it's at. Okay, what I would start with here, and this is not to be insensitive or to be uh, rude, but what would biblical scripture have to do with modern-day conversation regarding climate change in your mind? Well, the, the, the Bible predicts the, the future, has been predicting the future ever since it was written. And it's predicted in the Bible, in a lot of chapters. It's predicted that the, the world is going to heat up and man is going to be burnt with the sun, with pain. And, and there's a lot of references to that. And the reason why I know that is because I read the Bible and study it very hard. Nobody told me this because I actually wanted to know for myself. So global warming is happening, and people need to do things about it. But what really disappoints me is they don't uh, they don't fit together and say, what can we do to stop global warming? I know a few uh, things we can do just to start the ball rolling, and some people think I'm a little wacky, but... It'll stop global warming. I don't know if there's any such thing as stopping it. It's slowing it while we try to figure out how to, you know, wide-sweeping behavioral changes, wide-sweeping adoption of technology that can help. I think there's not even, there's not necessarily one thing that can happen. You know, there's individuals that can make their own decisions in their own homes, in their own transportation, and those types of things. Governments can do it. Companies can do it. So I'm not sure what the one-size-fits-all might be, but where would you like to start? Well, for one thing, government is, should be coming up, uh, going to schools and should be asking young people for ideas what they can do. Uh, I find most people in the government don't want to mention anything about anything because they're more worried about losing their job and their pension than they are uh, fixing global warming. So just to start, when I was uh, driving on jobs years ago, Bull Arm and different jobs, I used to drive, deliberately drive slow, and I used to save a lot of gas by driving slow. Uh, the same thing still applies today. If, if we slow down the speed limits to all the cars, it will save a lot of uh, pollution from cars going up into the air. And another thing is to have, if you make everything moist, the reason why the world is heating up is because the snow is melting, but if we start making everything moist, let's have... Uh, white siding on houses, let's have white cars, let's have white pavement. And that that could uh, do it. Uh, the thing is, all these things seem far-fetched, but most people really don't want to think about what to do. All they think about is, hey, what's wrong with what he just said? But I'm telling you now, if it used to be, you know, plant trees, but now with all the, the fires in Canada for the eight or ten uh, times more fires in Canada than we ever had before, it's almost a foolish thing to say, plant trees, but it's a start. The trees, uh, you know, helps us to uh, combat global warming. Well, there's so lots I, of tree planting programs provincially, municipally. The federal government pretty aggressive on that front. It's not a shortage of tree issues here, but we're we're sprawling out, right? I mean, we have such a big country, we think there's 
no problems with having the big urban sprawl that is currently a big part of it. That's how all these cities are being uh, managed is that they're getting bigger in footprint as opposed to smarter in footprint. And, you know, all of these things. Look, I have no idea what the impact of more white would be. Fair enough. But that's where I think, I, I think if I'm hearing your point correctly, is that so many of these things get rejected out of hand because someone think it's wacky or some might think it's uh, rooted in uh, misunderstanding or it's rooted in incompetence or inactivity or whatever the case may be. But that's because the conversation has been virtually impossible because it's either all in and it's all chicken little or uh, it's all out and full rejection as opposed to just acknowledging what's happening and what do, we, what, what do we think we can do about it. And that's really missing in a lot of political conversations. And if it's about their number one job as uh, entering uh, the world of politics is to get elected, number two is to get reelected, that's part of the problem. I think you're right there. Uh, back years ago, uh, Al Gore ran for the president of the United States. And his whole, uh, one of the main things he was talking about was global warming, and he was going to fix global warming. And that was back 40 years ago. But he never got voted in because the people just didn't like the idea of someone trying to disrupt uh, everything that's going on and everything so hunky-dory and nice. But the man that was just on the line, you know, he's he's 100% right. Things are just going to get worse and worse and worse. And if we don't soon do something about it, you know, yeah, we all suffer. You know, it's time for us to try to do something about it. And it is uh, predicted in the Bible that man will curse God and he will be in pain with the sun, the heat of the sun beating down on him. And I, I, I got at least, you know, 20 references that people can read exactly 100% in the Bible talking about global warming. So that's all I got to say, really. I mean... I think it's time for uh, maybe children to uh, in schools to write down ideas that they got, and it's time for someone to pursue this and, and try to stop this from happening because it's like everybody's like an ostrich. They got their head stuck in the sand, and most people don't want to say anything about anything because they're afraid to open their mouth about anything. And a lot of them don't want to lose their jobs. They want to be they don't want to be pegged as someone that's you know a, a radical or off their head or whatever. So. Fair enough. It's, I just, uh, one of the things that I have to deal with day in and day out is bringing up, look, I got my head stuck out there and some people are wanting to chop it off and so be it. But if we don't have conversations and pretending that the status quo is working, I would, I would think in people's quiet moments, they realize quite clearly the status quo is not working for virtually anybody yeah. except those at the very uh, top of the food chain. I uh, appreciate True. your time this morning. You take good care of yourself. Okay, thank you All for letting me call. No problem. Bye-bye. And Bye. talking about the youth, I'll throw this out there one more time. <laughs> Again, maybe I do it on purpose because it's controversial in some corners. You know, the next wave of voters are coming quick, and millennials last time in the federal election, they were the largest voting block. It has long been senior citizens were the, uh, uh, the largest voting block, not so much anymore. The whole conversation about the voting age, I know it really riles some people up. You say, well, let's use number 16. Should it be 16? And then the immediate pushback is, well, you don't know anything at 16. Well, there's lots of people my age who don't know anything, and they get to vote. And how many people that don't get a chance to vote are actually paying taxes? And some of the decisions made today will have an impact on them tomorrow, and they, have, they play no role. So when we talk about youth and those types of issues, maybe just to get a, an interested caller, what do you think of the voting age question? Because some young people, I think they get the short shrift, and we think that they've got all the wrong ideas, and they're lazy, and they're entitled, and all the rest of it.
But maybe, just maybe, they've got some ideas that would actually help the conversation versus hamper it. Uh, because, again, you might think that everyone at 16 doesn't know what they're talking about, but I guarantee you there's tons of us at 54 have no idea what we're talking about. Let's go to line number one. Murray, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. We had a bad fright there last last week, the Maple Leaf fans. Someone missed to Connor McGuire going to Toronto and mistook it for Connor McDavid, Patty. Yeah, it was... We uh, were beating ourselves on the chest, I tell you. A <laughs> couple of different things. A couple of different players. Yeah. Uh, I just called again, Patty. I'm wondering if you asked Sarah Strickland to reach out to John Ogan, Minister John Ogan, I wonder if, if he is going to come on or have he been on because I missed a couple of hours of the show one day. Yesterday, I wonder have he responded back or no? I think David Williams last week before he went on his holiday did send along a request, and he's not here for me to follow up with directly. But I suppose between myself and Fonse, we can figure it out and resubmit that request to the minister. Yes, please do, Patty. No problem. We had a meeting here on the southwest coast in Burnt Islands yesterday Sunday with the Wreckhouse Weekly. Nothing. I don't see any different now than it was before. Waste of time. They don't want to hear talk anything about the corruption that's going on in Port of Bass. All they're interested in is the the town council of Burnlands was supposed to file for this money. Maybe that is so, I don't know. They says it's not Andrew Parsons' job to come and meet with us. Reach out to us here and let us know what's going on. He told me it's not Andrew Parsons' job. It appears to me he's a puppet for Brian Button. That's my opinion. Yeah, I don't know if that would be the case, but regardless of whose job it is, the questions that you have asked are fair. And so regardless of if it's the Premier or Minister Parsons or Minister Hogan or anybody else, if you can't get answers, then it kind of doesn't matter whose job it is because the silence is crushing and it's deafening as it always is so i don't care who gives you the answers i just think that's uh incumbent on any of the aforementioned political leaders to answer the question simple exactly. as that Ready? and even if you don't like the answer you get maybe just maybe some sort of answer will give us an opportunity to figure out if not why not right we don't get anything we don't know anything we're in the blind we're in the darkness here why haven't andrew parsons come to those small communities and had a meeting with us. And Patty, I, Friday, last second last caller announced, I think there's going to be a wind farm for the southwest coast, maybe. Did I hear that right? Well, uh, there was nine proposals that are moving to the next phase. What eventually gets built, we're not entirely sure. But very likely, inside of the nine that are moving on, there's going to be some that will proceed, without question. And I think one of the uh, projects will absolutely be on the Port of Port Peninsula with uh, World Energy GH2. They seem to be out in front of a lot of the other projects. And I'm not going to predetermine the outcome, but I'm going to think that within the next couple of years there will be approvals and construction ongoing for two or three of these, for sure. So would the Southwest Coast come under Port of Port? Well, I guess it depends where you are, but it's certainly in that neck of the woods. Well... Those people in Port of Bass, Andrew Parsons and Brian Button, are destroying all those big modern homes for no reason that anyone on this coast can see, okay? 
hundreds and hundreds of thousand dollars going tearing down homes that shouldn't be took down. There's no 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 such thing as impact from a storm because if those houses that's coming down up there now, if a storm reaches high enough to touch some of them houses, there won't be a home lift on this coast east of Port of Bass. And once they gets all this money spin from Fiona and gets all the land cleaned up up there on the east side and south side of Port of Bass, Patty, what a spot for a wind farm. You know, that's only speculation on my part, Patty, but I'm trying to figure out what's going on. In the meantime, my house, Patty, is still here slowly washing away. There was a juster here yesterday to the lady across the road. You spoke to her, Holly. Mm-hmm. They've offered to put armor stone around her garage because the garage will soon be gone, oh, Lord. They've offered to put armor stone around her garage to save it, and her house is there about six or seven feet from the water, and there's no concern to them. And this Rick House Weekly, i seen after the meeting Sunday, he put a post on Facebook yesterday. All he talked about was the, the positive of burnt in burnt oh, no, there's one lady here had a lot of damage to her home. Fiona disaster offered her forty four thousand dollars to repair her home, which won't cover it. But that's the only thing he put on Facebook, Patty. Anything positive, anything negative didn't go there. So well, what I can say is that we will resubmit a request for Minister Hogan, and this is specifically about how and where the money flows and the designation of a Fiona-impacted area in Port of Basque versus Burnt Islands or wherever else Fiona struck. It just does not matter. I don't know how many times we'll have to say that. Fiona didn't recognize the town boundaries. That's right. It blew where it blew, and it blew the waves where the waves went, and that's the end of the story. Uh, Murray, we'll see what we can uh, do the, regarding time with Minister Hogan, and I appreciate the call. Okay, sir. Thank you very much for taking the call. Take care. Catch you later. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, yesterday we're still trying to organize some time with either Alzheimer's a Society of Canada and or the provincial chapter, but we understand some of the reps here provincially are on a summer break, as people are deserving of. And, you know, some of the forecasted numbers and preparations. I actually did some reading yesterday beyond just the forecasted numbers, but some of the clinical trials that are happening. Uh, right in front of the FDA, there's some drugs that they're having a closer look at that may indeed slow the progress of Alzheimer's. Not a full-on cure, but it's, it's a conversation that I think we have to have. And in this province, some community leaders have recognized the prevalence of dementia, in their community, and what they think they should do about it. One such community is down in... Twi- uh, one of such uh, communities, Twillingate, and their mayor, Justin Blackler, joins us after this. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the uh, mayor of Twillingate. That's Justin Blackler. Mayor Blackler, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, buddy. How are you? Best kind this morning. How you doing? Oh, living the dream, sir. Good on you. So, first off, before we get into some tourism numbers and otherwise, there was a story about your community now striking some committees to talk about what a dementia-friendly Twillingate would look like. One of the quotes says, I was amazed and floored about a community this small and the prevalence of it in our area, and now I see the need for it more than ever. What happened? 
Well, Paddy, we, we were kind of approached from, um, this all started about last year when, when a couple of communities, I think eight in total, were approached to become more dementia friendly. So it was just another email to the council, you know, looking for members to serve on the committee. So sure, I'd go serve on the committee and be a part of it, be an active member. But it wasn't until I got into those meetings. Um, Candy Carty works with Central Health in Tullingate, and she kind of she she runs the show. So I sat in on the first couple of, couple of the meetings, and there's some just local residents. There's people from different organizations there, and just listening to the people. We get a couple of individuals on the committee who have loved ones who um, are diagnosed with dementia, and after hearing their stories, and I'm from this community. I was gone away for a while, but I moved back a couple of years ago, <clears throat> not having any idea about the numbers of in the community of dementia um, and how it actually does impact the family and how the town can actually be doing better to support the families and the individuals. Supports like what? I mean, when I see like cafes and entertainment and maybe transportation or what have you, what makes a dementia-friendly community different than other these types of amenities offer to the general public? Just wonder what people mean by that. No, absolutely. And I think any community who's taking this on is going to look different, Patty. And I think one of the first things we were talking about is, like, how do you be a dementia-friendly community? Um, so the three things we're focusing on now is basically education, um, providing support for the individuals diagnosed with uh, dementia, and then support the families or the caregivers. So I spoke to uh, I spoke to an interview a little while ago. I said, you know, education right now is the biggest part for, for what the community is looking at. The community needs to be educated on, you know, what dementia looks like, what does it mean for the individual? What does it mean for the family? And maybe knowing more yourself can make you more ready or adapt to dealing with somebody with dementia. So one of the stories that came out of our committee talked about an individual who was dealing with law enforcement and with municipal um, employees. And she had great stories, very supportive. But the lack of education and awareness around dementia led to that interaction being a little more negative than it could have been. So right now we're pushing out um, some modules that's online that comes out through the Alzheimer's um, Society. We want everybody in the town, the council, the town office, residents, to be looking at these online modules, completing it to educate yourself on what it looks like, how do you better support, how do you better interact. Um, so that's piece number one, is educate the community and the community members. We do want to start having those supports in place. Like you did do a, a community wheels program where you're getting the families involved and getting them out in the community, going for rides, and just building their support network. And then we're going to start having some activities like these little music cafes and places where the caregivers, the individuals, the community can come together, support the family, support the people, and just be a more aware community than what we are right now. And Patty, I was very, very guilty of it. Um, I mean, I know there's always stories of somebody had dementia, different stages of it, but not really knowing the impact on what the family um, looked like, like loved ones, caregivers being constantly in worry, um, you know, constantly having to make sure where they're to and what they're doing. And, just for the town to be more aware and better supportive would, would you know, lend to a better place. This is sort of an odd question to try to formulate and ask, but what do you think are some of the key things people are unaware of, whether it be the person who diagnosed living with dementia and or their loved ones or caregivers? Yeah, I, I don't think people are aware of how many people are in the community, which I'm still not sure of the exact numbers, but it's more prevalent than I thought. And to be able to maybe identify um, some of the characteristics and know how to respond to it. So if you're dealing with an individual, one of the stories that came out was um, the individual was dealing with the RCMP. And if you had no idea or if you didn't have it in the back of your mind or even a thought come across your mind saying, no, I could be dealing with an individual with A, mental health issues, B, dementia, the diagnosis. As humans, we sometimes skip that first step. 
But the more aware we are that there's individuals in the community with dementia, we might say, okay, I'm wondering if I'm dealing right now with an individual who might need a little bit more care, a, little, a different approach. And having that piece in the back of your mind may make your interaction with that individual a little bit different. And I think that's kind of what we're looking for. Um, like when we started, there's different things you can do. We talked about, first question I asked was like, what would you do? And we were talking about like clear signages. We're a big tourism tourism community. And if you get individuals in the town or visiting the town, clear signage, whether it be washrooms or directions or locations, making stuff simpler than more complex when it comes to design. So many things you can be doing to become more dementia-friendly. I think so. And the reason I brought it up yesterday was not only provoked by the news story coming from your community, but we have long been made aware of, well, the province does have a three-year plan in place, but the forecast numbers regarding folks to be living with dementia in this country are going to grow exponentially. So say people in the know. And so being prepared for it, whether it be as individuals or businesses or friends or politicians, pretty important stuff. So bravo on you. And I would think, you know, this is an exercise worth undertaking in a variety of communities, and maybe it can be expanded to understanding the prevalence and issues surrounding folks who might be on the spectrum and or dealing with Alzheimer's or dementia or a variety of things where unless it hits you inside your family or your circle of close friends, you probably don't consider it, but it's everywhere around you. 100%. No, I agree. And I, I was blind to it, and I shouldn't have been. And I'm very glad that Candy, uh, Candy Carr invited me to the committee, and I'm very glad to be a part of it now. I'm hoping that it stays an active committee for a while to come. Yeah, I want to dig more into the 36-step action plan that the province has brought forward, and that was as recently as this March. So I'll try to figure a bit more of that out. And while we have you, I had a caller one day last week singing the praises of the dinner theater in Twilling Gate. You know, it was very much like the Stardust Diner on Broadway where the folks who were serving the meals are the folks who are hitting the stage, and that person had nothing but great things to say. But I'm also told that your community is absolutely hopping with visitors. Oh, it's, uh, it's great to see. I mean, obviously, everybody had slow years the last couple of years, but the town right now is uh, seeing a lot of visitors, and it is awesome. Um, Dinner Theater is busy. It's a great place. I go there. Actually, it's uh, owned and operated by my first cousin, so I, oh. I frequent at least once a year, and uh, it's a beautiful. There's a lot of beautiful things here. Tourism industry in Tullingate, the accommodators and the operators are catering to the tourists, and it is making this community what it is. It's one of the biggest reasons for success in this community. Um, we got some very passionate tourism operators, and they're, they're damn sure that they're going to make the experience wonderful for anybody who's coming here. Do they sing from a, the, a similar uh, songbook or hymn book when they talk about some other things that need to be put in place, whether it be leadership from the municipal council and or the province? Some of the more common things we're hearing now is about, for instance, signage. It's one thing if you're familiar with the province or familiar with one, one region or another, you can navigate, maybe ask a few questions. But for folks who are brand new to the province, sometimes we really do indeed have a bit of a shoddy approach to signage. We do. And like I said, I know that individual companies here and businesses are trying to promote themselves and that through social media more than ever, but we still need that that structural signage to help people get around. Um, I know we get a rock cut trails here. We've been promoting those things uh, better now all the time and we're trying to get signage at all our place, but no doubt the signage is something that's still needed. And we're getting a lot of visitors come here now. And even in, in Tullingate, so small as it is, on the island, still find themselves getting lost looking for different businesses. Um, so obviously it's something local as well as provincial. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Blackler. When the committee moves on with some of these different approaches, education and otherwise, to being a dementia-friendly community, happy to have one of the uh, committee members or yourself back on the show to talk about where you're going. Absolutely. I'm going to try to convince Candy Carr to get on some of these. She's, uh, she's no doubt the community expert on this, so 
I'm just the one who wants to talk. She's the one who knows all the stuff. So I'm going to convince her to get on next time. Please do. Uh, put the invitation in her ear on my behalf, please. Will do, Patty. Thanks, Mayor. Thanks, Willie. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Justin Blackler. He's the mayor of the town at Twillingate. Okay, let's take a break. But when we come back, we've talked, you know, oftentimes about some of the heritage uh, buildings and infrastructure. Sometimes at the 11th hour, there's a rally cry before the wrecking ball swings. Sometimes... Businesses and communities go out of the way to preserve them. Don Coombs, he's the mayor of Harbour Grace. Up after this. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, I've heard from a variety of listeners, Twitter, email, what have you, that there's a widespread water problem in the west end of the city so the newsroom's trying to figure out exactly what's going on people are having a hard time reaching the city through 311 so we are trying to figure it out but apparently it is a widespread problem so that's yeah. obviously not good uh, yes what we've funds? gotten calls from uh, uh waterford bridge road to black marsh road yeah so it's a huge problem out there we're trying to figure it out and when we do we'll bring it to you let's go to line number one say good morning to the mayor of harbor grace that's don coombs mayor coombs you're on the air Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well, thank you, sir. How about you? I'm doing fantastic, Patty. We just had a great weekend in our town. Uh, thanks to Brenda O'Reilly and Craig Flynn. We had the opening of the old courthouse, the building that was left to be uh, derelict. And uh, I guess over a period of time go down, Brenda and Craig uh, saved the building and they had their official opening on Sunday. And uh, what a what a turnout! What a great what a great day! And uh, the things that they have. And I, I did a little congratulatory note to them, and I want to on behalf of regional province, see for locals, for tourists, and for everybody in between to get out. Then they got the speakeasy theme downstairs. Uh, the garden is outside for food to be served. There's a show place upstairs, and the building is immaculate. Uh, you know, I want to thank on behalf of our residents and the region and the province, Craig and Brenda, for saving a piece of uh, history in our province and a piece of heritage. It's it's unreal, Patty, and I'm sure I'll hopefully see you out there one of these days. You will. They and were kind absolutely. enough to invite me to the opening, but I just simply could not get away. But it's absolutely on my list for the summer. Oh, and Pat, Patty, and we know about the church. We know that they got the church years and years ago, and Craig did the tour of the church for all the staff. And he's planned for that. Uh, the man's vision and Brenda's vision is uh, unreal. It's going to be a conference. be a beer garden outside. It's going to be a beer spa. It's going to be unreal. And just, uh, I was going to say to him after, but he was so busy and that, you know, you can do tours of the thing. And the history that he saved, he's preserved everything in the old Roman Catholic Church. There's nothing destroyed. And that's the thing about it. The bell towers are backed up. He's got a walkway. You can go up and see the bells. And I think the bells were made in 1834. And it's the Immaculate Conception Church of Harbor Grace that's embossed into the bells. They were spe- specifically made for that. So Craig and Brenda preserve everything about it. We look forward to that opening. And then they got another big uh, big thing coming up. They mentioned uh, the hotel. Uh, that uh, He mentioned that during the tour, so uh, I speak freely about it. But uh, as people like Craig and Brenda, they're making our town, our province, a better place. And when you're talking to people coming in to visit, these are going to be two must-sees in, in, in the province. And, you know, back in 92, with the COD happened, you know, Harbour Grace pretty well fell down a fair bit. And we got investors like Craig 
And Brenda, we got the Harbor Grace Social Enterprises, who we have Breaking, Kevin English, and Paul Lannon, and Wayne Reed investing in our community. We got Steiner Ingersted at the Harbor Grace Coal Storage. We got properties being bought all over the place. And it's unreal the activity in our town, and that's good to see. And uh, Craig and Brenda took a leadership role. Uh, I want to say a, a sincere thank you on behalf of council, our residents, and the whole region. Folks, they opened this Friday for the public, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And next week is Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Two different type menus. The speakeasy is a, a little bit plate thing. And up top, you can get your fish and chips. You can get your burgers. You can get that stuff. Excellent staff. I think it was 16 on staff. That's 16 new jobs in our region. Just from just from the old courthouse itself, you can book in and go into one of the cells that were there. He preserved the cells. The jail things are there. It's all there. The docket is there for people to see. So I just want to say thank you, Patty. And I'm sure I'll see you out there one day when you get it. When you get notes, just give me a call and we'll meet up and have a burger and have a chat. Absolutely. You know, and I'm glad you called on this this morning because it's, you know. There's a lot of good things happening in a lot of communities. It's not all the doldrums and the down-in-the-mouth stuff. Of course, we have to highlight the problems, but we should also celebrate the achievements, whether it be with Breaky's operations or Brenda and Craig's uh, influence in the community. But in realistic terms, it's great to preserve these buildings, number one, and especially the way they've done it. Bravo to both. What do you think it means to the community? Do you think this will be on the map or the bucket list for things to do for the locals over the summer? Or all of a sudden will leak into the mind of the concierge at the towny hotels for what should I do, where should I go? I think it's going to be, I don't think you're going to get near the place weekend. And I hope we don't get near the place, but I hope I get in. I think it's a must-see in the province of Newfoundland Labrador. We got to the Mara Bonavista. We got to Mara communities like that that did so much. This is, but this this structures, these structures, these buildings, these preservation of our history, you know, it, it brings pride into our, our communities. And that's, these places are going to be must-sees in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And you know what, Patty? We're an hour from the city. You can get up and just say, let's, let's go around, do it, and see the structure and the preservation. And I think he's been at the church for probably five or six years. I'm thinking that. He's not in his vision for that, but that's going to be the spot in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I have no doubt. Yeah, I mean, they don't go halfway. And uh, I can't comment on the difference between how much effort either puts in, which is a ton. Craig is nuts. <laughs> he is all in all day, every day. Good on him. We're on, we're on the same page with that because that man is in Harbor Grace every day. And he's the last one to leave to turn the lights off in the night. He's bought. Probably, uh, I don't want to say it, probably six or eight houses that he's doing up in the town. He's looking at apartment buildings that we have, uh, council have done. His long-term vision and hers is unreal. And he's, he's right. It's just go, 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 go. You know, before the opening, the boys were telling he was moving the trash containers from the places he's getting cleaned up and rebuilt around town. He's just non-stop. And his vision is unreal. His vision is just like a, a, at the tour. The tour was worth it. And, he, you know, his vision was unreal. His dad and mom were there, and they were so proud, and we got tired of it coming from away. But it, it's going to be a destination in, in the province of Newfoundland, Labrador, and anybody flying into St. John's are going to end up in a harbor race at some time. I appreciate this, uh, Mayor Coombs. And, of course, we mentioned uh, Craig's parents uh, and Durham talking about come from way because Durham is a character in come from way because he was, of course, the mayor of Appleton during those days. Yes, he was, and, and we got to talk about it, and we got to talk about the tickets and the show out in Gander, and people are flying in from all over the world to, to see the show in Gander. This is where it happened, and, the, you know, it's great for Gander. And it's great. I know Durham's a proud 
home through municipal politics forever and a day. And him and his wife were so there. And Steve Crocker was instrumental in Daquisi. Craig and Flynn was there. And Ken McDonald showed up. And people from St. John's, uh, Pete Quinton was out. And other people from all over the region, all over the city. And just a proud day uh, to be mayor of Town of Harbour Grace and a citizen of Harbour Grace. Thanks, Mark Coombs. Stay in touch. We'll see you soon. Cheers, Eddie. All Bye. the best. Bye-bye. That's Don Coombs. He's the mayor of the town of Harbour Grace. Good things happening by the sound of it. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Megan. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thanks for asking. How about you? Good, thank you. I'd like to chat about the lack of bathrooms or porta-potties for our kids and spectators when they play sports. So my daughter's in uh, St. John's Minor Baseball Association. Can't say enough about that organization. We're, we're three years in, and she's on a house league team and an all-star team. So we're slammed driving around the city all over the place. And most of the places don't have a bathroom proper or porta-potties. And the games are at least two hours long. Girls and their families are coming in from all over the city. And uh, the girls, my girls' age, these are, are young women who are often just getting their periods for the first time and need to learn to manage it, and uh, they have nowhere to go. So our home practice is on Logie Bay Road, Conway Glen. Yep. And you literally have to dart across Logie Bay Road to pee in the woods. And it's craziness. So, I, you know, instead of just complaining about it or lambasting people on social media, I tried to do the right thing, and I contacted St. John's Minor Baseball and they flicked me over to the city and I found the Ward 1 counsellor, Jill Bruce, and she was great. She responded right away. But it's everybody passing it to everybody else saying it cannot be done due to cost and vandalism and cleaning it up. And it's just that runaround response where there's no solution. Well, as a long-time minor sports parent, I know exactly what you're talking about. There would be little kids being hauled off the side of uh, Air Athletic Field or Conway Glen or over Kelly's Brook because inevitably the little kids, as much as you ask them, can you please go do your pee before we go to baseball tonight? <laughs> and sometimes yeah. they do, sometimes they don't. And inevitably, they're in the woods or up against the fence or behind a tree, which is not great. I'll, I'll say. Yeah, or any age. And any like age. I know personally, if I know I can't go, it's all I focus on. It's like this anxiety of like, what if I got to go? <laughs> and I mean, I get it. I get it that there's cleaning it and maintaining it and all of that stuff. But surely there has to be something. I mean, there, it's just no response. It's like, you know, you're poop out of luck. It's a real shame that we have to factor in the likelihood that they absolutely will be vandalized. I mean, there, yeah. there's no doubt about it. Whether it be through graffiti or tipped over or whatever, you know that's part of the equation, and that's a real shame. Because if, it, if you could back that out, then the affordability issue, that could be addressed. But yeah. replacement and cleaning them, whether it be graffiti or otherwise, it's just really too bad that that's such a prominent part of the conversation. And that's the reality of life, unfortunately, isn't it? But I hadn't really given it much thought since I graduated from minor and amateur sports viewing, which I miss a lot yeah and now have to go watch my nephews which i love but it's not the same as watching your own children but it's a fair point to bring up megan we'll throw it in the mix when we get a chance to speak with the city once again thank you kindly sir my pleasure take care have a good day bye-bye bye -bye. uh yeah <laughs> it's real for any minor sports parent you see it all the time it's that behind the tree or in the bushes because if you have to go and you're a child 
You know, it's one thing for me to try to hold off, but for the little ones, that's it's either go behind the tree or go in your cleats. So it happens a lot. Anyway, same thing when we talk about some of the tourist attractions and when the season actually kicks in before some of the amenities are open. Now, finally, for the first time ever, there's an opportunity to get a, a light bite to eat and a, a beverage out of Cape Spear. But, of course, throughout the years, we've understood the fact that until it became actual so-called peak tourism season, things like the bathrooms were not open. And, you know, you go to the front desk at the hotel, and it's just before peak season, and Parks Canada kicking in with their full complement of staff, and they say, what should I do? And you tell them, Cape Spear. They come back and say, it was cool, but there was nothing to, nowhere to get a drink and nowhere to use the washroom. When these types of things, you know, we talk about in, in improving the, the offerings that we have here in the tourism world. It's just kind of part and parcel with how improvements can and should be made. All right, let's take a break for the 11 o'clock news. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. The last caller talking about the lack of, well, we'll say, amenities or even porta potties at so many of the minor and amateur sports fields. It's absolutely an issue. Now, what it would cost to introduce them? Okay. There's also some concerns from different communities I've heard from, from parents of young athletes, uh, talking about even just the state of the facilities whether or not the grass was mown and the garbage was collected and all those types of things. And then you extend what might be the future for some minor athletes and very, very few because the focus in on, you know, playing for the name on the front of the jersey versus the name on the back of the jersey, some of the life skills and whatnot. And some people will take it to the next level, whether that be even simply playing a bit of senior ball, whether it be Challenge Cup or softball or hockey or what have you. Some will make it on to have an opportunity to play some varsity sports, of which there's many people in the province have had that luxury. And then some, very few, but some, will make a life at it, a professional life. I've been keenly watching and wondering when we're going to hear something from the Montreal Canadiens, the fact that, you you know, my favorite team and one of the kids that I talk about a lot here on this program, we try to spread it around. One of them is Alex Nahook. And so Colorado traded Alex and his rights as a restricted free agent to Montreal, and he got paid. Contract announced today, pretty solid to say the very least. A four-year deal worth $11.6 million, so an average cap hit of $2.9 million. Congratulations, Alex. That is absolutely brilliant news. Now, people making that kind of money, good for them, great for Alex, big fan, go get him, big opportunity ahead of him. And there was the thought that, uh, you know, regarding for the rest of us, and the mention I made off the top of the show about the Bank of Canada. So people are telling me that they have no choice but to go ahead and raise interest rates again. Their benchmark now is at 4.75%. It's the highest it's been since, the, since April of 2001. The reference to whether or not it's going to uh, impact affordability in the country is obvious. If we've had what it meant for people's mortgages, their variable mortgages, it has seen a massive spike in people's mortgage payments. And of course, with the household debt numbers that we see, and whether or not it's going to take 12 or 18 months for any adjustment to an interest rate to have any impact on inflation, and inflation has come back to worth somewhat, you know, peaked out at 8.1, we're getting closer and closer to 3, and that's right in the crosshairs where the Bank of Canada needs and wants to be. So... 
again, when you talk to a bunch of different economists, they'll have different opinions. Obviously, that's the way the world works. But thinking this might be an unnecessary move and maybe a mistake, I'm kind of in line with that. Maybe it's because I'm like the rest of you. I'm servicing some level of debt on top of my mortgage. And it won't be a credit card issue because, of course, you have a set credit card rate, whether it be generally or somewhere 18 19%. But the household debt service numbers are just out of control. And here's what it is. Household credit market debt as a proportion of household disposable income rose to one, uh, 184.5% in the first quarter of this year. That's up from 181.7% in the fourth quarter of 2022. And this, sir, the numbers come from Stats Canada. What that translates to is $185 in 1.85 in market credit debt for every dollar of household disposable income. So we have to earn, for every dollar I earn, on the average, Canadian households are trying to cover credit market debt at the tune of $1.85. So obviously, that's a problem. It's the worst it's ever been in the country. Now, again, you can put the level of blame on whoever you see fit, but that's not a mortgage-related matter. That's a credit market debt matter. You know, money was virtually free for a long time, and consequently, whether it be for any reason under the sun, to renovate the home or to take a holiday and to max out your line of credit, or maybe it was necessary because we know a lot of people were forced to deal with their lines of credit and their credit cards and to try to take out second mortgages, what have you, because of exactly this, trying to service their debt. Now, any increase in the Bank of Canada rate is really going to be a problem. We'll talk about all the measures that the Bank of Canada has available and things that different levels of government can and should maybe be doing, but this seems to be ill-timed. And I don't pretend to be an economist. I don't have the background or training of a Mark Carney or a Tiff Macklem or whoever. But it really feels like this is going to be punitive. So we're going to find out in short order whether or not the Bank of Canada makes that particular move. But it won't be welcomed in my household, and I'm sure it's not going to be welcomed in the vast majority of yours. For some folks, it won't be some sort of major league impact. But for, I'm going to suggest, three-quarters of Canadians at least, it is. I mean, just compare and contrast it to the fact that what is basically just a bump in your GST, the grocery rebate is a marketing campaign. It does nothing to deal with long-term issues regarding food insecurity. But 11 million Canadians were the recipients of that quote-unquote grocery rebate, which is helpful for some, and I'm sure it was certainly welcomed money coming in the door, and maybe people put it where they needed to put it, whether it be at the grocery store or on an outstanding bill or whatever the case may be. But we have got some long-term issues. We can talk about growth numbers and unemployment numbers, which we dug into a little bit. And, of course, I, was, I knew full well I'd be told that, you know, I have the propensity to make good news bad news. And it's not about that. It's about looking at what the numbers actually reflect. So, yes, good. When unemployment has shrunk into the single digits and gone from 10.2 to 8.8, there's a lot of good news attached to it. But we also have to look at some of the deeper dive numbers inside unemployment. So the province increased employment by 2,300 positions last month. Only three provinces in that neighborhood. That's Ontario, Nova Scotia, and us. But inside of that was an awful lot of part-time positions. The, and this is coming from Lynn Gambon, who's excellent. She's an associate professor at Memorial University's Economics Department. She had a look a little deeper in, and I'm using her, her words and her reflection or evaluation. Same thing I did yesterday afternoon to try to figure out what the numbers are actually saying. 
So yeah, there was a lot of part-time work in here. So by comparison, full-time employment numbers fell by over 800 positions. Part-time increased by 3,000 positions. Some of that, you assume, was with the seasonality of the tourism sector, the hospitality sector, and some part-time jobs coming from it. Some of it may indeed be some jobs that were included getting back into the crab plants and those types of things. But that's part of the reality. Also, what seldom gets mentioned in looking at unemployment numbers is labor market participation. And that's important. If you are no longer looking for a job, you get backed out of the unemployment numbers. But in this province, the uh, numbers of people actively working or looking for a job shrunk by 1,500 uh, people in June. And so what that translates to is inside the participation rate, so you're working or looking, we have the lowest rate in the country at 56.9. So again, we can take good news, and sometimes it has to be tempered with other numbers that are part of the reality, and in this case, part-time and market labor participation is exactly that. Yeah, good. Unemployment numbers are important. And in and around uh, the St. John's and the Northeast Avalon, employment is as low as 5%, which is also very good. But then you'll hear from employers on the other side saying, we have jobs available. And the number, when we open up a job or we post a job, and normally we would get 100-plus resumes, and now it's 20 or 30. And whether or not these are people actually suitable for the job or just applying for every job that they can possibly get their hands on and put a resume forward for. But so anyway, those are that's not cold water for the sake of. That's breaking down the numbers so we have a clear view of what else needs to be done and work that needs to be achieved. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. <laughs> well, someone asked me this, not the important thing in this world, but do we know what number New York's going to wear? It looks like number 15. Pretty great. All right, let's go to line number one. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Not too bad, you? Oh, doing good. Thanks. Uh, I was just listening to you there uh, uh, shortly there. We're talking about interest rates and uh, so forth, right? And one, I got a bit of a spiel on that one. The reason why the interest rates were low was to stimulate the economy, especially for small business. And the lower the rates, you create more small business and jumpstart the economy. Now we're going vice versa. The interest rates are going up, and you're probably going to put more small business out of business, and we're, the economy is going to retract it. What amazes me Inflation, it was come from Statistics Canada. What amazes me, the, the inflation's gone down a percentage point at 3.4. Unemployment's creeped up a little tab at 0.2. And there are the factors that they need to lower interest rates, but now it looks like they're going to put up another quarter percent, which don't make no sense because inflation has dropped to 3.4. Their target is 2%. So by putting up the interest rates, is going to do more harm than good. I'll give you an example. I talked to a gentleman there recently. He rents, and he's a works and a hard worker. And he told me from January to now, his rent went up $200. And the reason why the rent's going up, because more the interest rates goes up, then more the landlord's got to reflect it back to the tenants. So And everything in general, so it's like domino effects. So by upping interest rates, you're going to do more harm and good. And we're probably going to head to a depression worse 
than the than the thirties or whatever the case may be. No, we're not. Oh, you, no, 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 no. You better look no. at this whole picture here. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not considering there's a lot of people okay. going on. There's going to be more and more people going on hard times, and so we. Uh, I hope it don't go that way, but right now I don't see the good path. And this is what we got to take a look at. You look at okay, these grocery rebates, five hundred dollars. They're spending millions, millions of dollars. Yes, people need help, but why don't the the government, like they do in Quebec, encourage people to put the money in the right place, to, like support more local, probably grow your more food, home foods, and so forth. So the the money's not. Uh, what I'm trying to say, there's no accountability for what we're spending. It's, it's good to spend if it's going to be spent right and done right. And correct the problem. If not, we're just adding more fuel to the fire. And I and I agree with Pierre Pauliette. I think the bank, the governor, Bank of Canada. I think he should be fired personally because they're not getting it right. And you listen to different economists. Yes, they get different opinions. And some economists will say that this is old school of trying to uh, curtail inflation. What might have worked 20 or 30 years ago do not work now today. It's different times. So we got to be more open-minded and innovative to things as well. Easy things to do is like anything. You go up taxes, up interest rates. That's simple. But won't we be creative and innovative and try? Let's try to figure this out. Let's go more in debt and figure things out. See if we get it done in the right way. Yeah, our recession might be around the corner, but a depression, as you describe. I mean, let's just think about it. Industrial production, uh, stock market crash, number one, led to the Great Depression. The market crashed in 1929. So industrial production fell somewhere close to 50%. Uh, GDP declined by 30%. In the most recent recession that we experienced in North America, 2007, 2009, uh, the GDP declined by about 4%. Uh, unemployment slightly less than 10% versus what we saw in what was legitimately the most severe economic downturn in modern history. So that's not in the offing. Is there another recession coming similar to 0709? Possibly. And that was, you know, curiously, to your point about housing, a lot of that had to do with housing. A lot of that had to do with so many people upside down in their mortgage because the Americans just don't regulate that as carefully as the, it happens in this country, and thankfully so. But you're right, again, on the rental front, there's going to be another uptick in rent coming if the landlords are holding variable mortgages that are going to see a very swift uptick again, if it's 25 basis points. We don't know what the bank is going to do, but that sounds about right. And to get us to 5%, so mortgages are going to start with 5s, 6s, and 7s very shortly. It's not that long ago you could get into a mortgage that started with a 2 or a 3. Okay, Patty, okay, I'm going to give you another scenario now, okay, the business, are, a lot of people are crying for people to, can't get people to work, like I was listening to the Hickman uh, group alone, uh, they're, they're offering all these incentives to try to get people work, but yeah, but yet the Bank of Canada wants the employment to increase, to, to bring down inflation, but yet you got employers like the Hickman group, Hickman Group, sorry, are crying for people to maintain, to provide a service. So what I'm saying, the bet, there's too much of an imbalance because you've got employers crying for people, and now they're saying we got to get the employment rate up to def bring down the rate of inflation because we're, it's, it's, it's not the, they're saying it's not balancing out. There's not balancing out in other ways. So, so we're going one, there's two different directions Everything's going in general, and rather than coming together and getting it right, we're going two opposite directions in that way, and that's going to lead to catastrophe, 
And I think we're going to head. I, I could be wrong. I hope I am wrong. But we're going to go worse than a recession. This is how I see it as of today. And I hope you're right. And I hope I'm totally wrong. But if we do not get it right, we're in severe trouble. And that's how I look at it. I appreciate the time, Daryl. Thanks for the call. Again, thanks, Patty. And I greatly appreciate your input as well. And uh, we just... Uh, We'll see what happens. I think that rate's going to be announced tomorrow, isn't it? Uh, possibly, yeah. Yeah, uh, well, I hope he uh, start, He better put the thinking cap on and get it right. But I do agree with Pierre Pauliet as of today. I think it needs to be a change and different eyes looking at the things in, der- in general and see what can be done for the better. Appreciate the time. Okay, thanks again, Patty. All the Take best care. to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. So, look, with the... Trying to control inflation, which has really come back to earth. Now, we don't feel it in a variety of fronts. You know, they talk about the implication of uh, housing and gas or other fuels, what have you. We just saw a big increase in the price of the pumps. We've seen a massive increase in the price of getting into a, a home. But he's not wrong on the unemployment statements he made regarding the Bank of Canada and their thoughts about the unemployment numbers. The national unemployment rate is 5.4%. And Macklem has said this out loud. The primary contributor to inflation is that there's more money looking for more services. And the, the, the demand is outweighed the supply, you know, in very much layman's terms. And Macklem has said unemployment is helpful for inflation because less people working, less money in their hands, less demand on goods and services. So, so I get it. But boy, oh boy, that really does come from an ivory tower. Imagine saying that quiet part out loud and, you know, talking about reassuring Canadians because things like the Bank of Canada levers available to pull and uh, or political leaders and different political parties, it's the furthest thing from reassuring to tell me that unemployment good because it's not good, regardless of what Tiff Macklem says. Would we rather have more Canadians working and inflation stubbornly high at 3.5% or fewer Canadians working and get into 2.5% closer to his comfort zone? What's better for us? Not Macklem's view. Would you rather have another point of inflation or a lesser point of inflation, a decreased point, and people out of jobs? I mean, again, we can look at the unemployment numbers and break them down a little further to get a clear reflection of what they actually say and mean. But hauling people out of the workforce for the sake of trying to get to 2.5% versus the 3.4 or whatever... Sounds a little bit strange to me. Uh, Let's take a break for the newscast. Still a couple of segments and a lot of time left to speak with you on a topic that is up to you. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, for a maybe a bit of a hyper towny conversation, but there was lots of controversy stewing and brewing on social media when it came to the whole concept of shared use pathways. If you've ever lived anywhere else in the country or spent any significant amount of time in other cities in the country, shared use pathways are pretty commonplace. So is there a way for it to be done right? Now the city is expected to, the council is expected to ratify uh, a contract tonight only one bidder came forward to talk about the first phase, with, which it comes with a price tag of some $5.7 million. So it's basically going to include the stretch from Bonaventure Avenue out to Westerland Road. 
So the shared path will be installed on the university side of the street and the buffer between it and the road. Okay. When you look at the actual data from elsewhere, look, people are not wrong to wonder whether or not it's going to pose a potential safety issue on the paths. If you have runners or walkers, especially when you factor in that so many people walk and run with their earbuds in, and so you should, if that's what keeps you going, you listen to a podcast or music or whatever it is, or this program, and then the concept of scooters and bicycles that could be coming at pretty significant rates of speed. N no one denies that. So it does come with the width of the pathway, and yes, the responsibility for those who now be able to share that space with the walkers and the runners is we've just got to, you know, whether it be through signage and or enforcement and or education to ensure that the path is safe for all hands. But it's coming, and so the council is widely anticipated they will indeed move forward with this first phase. It's been part of the public debate for an awful long time, so whether or not you're a bicyclist or ride a scooter, or a runner or a walker, and you want to talk about the shared paths. I know it's controversial in some corners, but it absolutely can work, not because I say so, but because the data says so in other parts of the country where they are just very much commonplace. And then again, you know, this is a issue that's not going away and always is going to get attention and conversation is regarding healthcare workers. I've been told I'm foolish to think that there's going to be any federal intervention and or federally led conversation regarding healthcare professionals because traditionally they have shrugged their shoulders and pretty much said it's provincial jurisdiction so we'll leave it to the provinces. I get that and we're not asking for the feds or I'm not suggesting that the feds get intimately involved in the healthcare delivery system because every province is different. And provincial governments are better equipped to understand the gaps and the shortfalls and the needs inside their own provinces' healthcare. But when we find ourselves in this ridiculous standoff regarding province to province and their own uh, credentials and accreditation and whether or not the, the healthcare professionals are as mobile as they could be inside our own country, this conversation is not going away. So I'm sure the federal government is loath to get too deeply involved here. But even when we have these uh, First Minister's meetings, which is currently ongoing now in Winnipeg, maybe we can tap into some of the things that are at the top of their, uh, the Premier's agendas, but for health ministers. You know, if we find ourselves in a place where it's simply the haves will dominate, be able to recruit and consequently retain healthcare professionals, those other provinces that are struggling won't be able to compete, that's just simply nonsensical. It's bad for the country. So my suggestion, which has been widely criticized, is that if there's some form of metrics where you can talk about what the maximum is where we can be paying any healthcare professional based on tax rates from province to province, cost of living measures, whether that be tax and or housing and those types of things, to come up with a number. Because you're absolutely right in saying it's different to try to navigate living in Vancouver than it is in St. John's. No one's arguing that point. But... Is it in anyone's best interest if all of a sudden the bidding war becomes the rule of thumb? Is it in anyone's best interest that provinces play in the territorial standoffs and you can't see one discipline or another moving around as freely as they absolutely should? If you're trained at an accredited university, for instance, to be a registered psychiatric nurse, you should be able to work anywhere in this country. Yes, amend legislation to allow the College of Registered Nurses of the province, which is the regulatory body for all registered nurses, nurse practitioners, let's add registered psychiatric nurses to it. We've got a shortcoming in mental health, so how the, I know the province is moving forward with the pilot and very likely going to amend the legislation, but let's get at it. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Hilliard. You're on the air. 
Yes, good morning. Morning to you. I want to, uh, want to talk about the, the cost of living uh, and uh, and uh, the the things that uh, are happening to to make it costly. Uh, you take in, in grocery stores. Um, the uh, supermarket now puts on a special, and they have uh, three, and you buy three, and you get them for a dollar, say a dollar ninety-eight. And then you buy one. If you only need one, due to your circumstances, they charge you two ninety-eight. And that that goes on with a number of items in those grocery stores, and they're making it difficult for senior people and and single people to to avail of uh, suitable produce. I agree. So, Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Yesterday, I went in for one specific item, but my wife said, if you happen to see tomato sauce on sale, grab a few. Because we use tomato sauce yeah. for a lot of stuff. So at one point, you could get three tins, which is, I have a family of four, so three tins is right up my alley. I could get it for yeah. in and around five or six bucks. Per can of the large tomato sauce, it was four, I think it was four fifty-four or four sixty-four per tin yesterday. So everything is just out of whack. Yeah. And, you know, I'm uh, I'm 88 and living alone because my wife passed away some years ago, and uh, I uh, I called up the health and, and and welfare department and asked them if there was any assistance for people that are living alone, and uh, they said, well. Uh, are you able to get a meal for yourself? I said, yes. And are you able to get a shower? I said, yes. And, uh, well, what kind of assistance do you need? I said, I need someone to help keep the place clean because I can't kneel anymore. I've had one knee replaced and the other one is bad. And and, uh, she said, well, I'm sorry, we don't provide maid service. And uh, I said, well, I said, uh, are you going to give any assistance to people living in their own homes or not? And she said, well, we can give you two hours a week for bathing. Now, what what assistance is that? And you, you take, uh, they, they take people in these uh, senior citizens' homes or, or uh, retirement homes, and the government subsidizes that. I'm sure the government is subsidizing that to the tune of a couple of thousand dollars each. Uh, I don't know what your information is on that, but uh, for me, I've I've lived here for 50 years, and I've never cost anybody any money, and I just wanted a bit of assistance to keep the place tidy, and. Uh, so I can live in squalor, and nobody gives a damn, and uh, all all they can provide me with is uh, two hours to get a bath. You still there? Yeah, I'm listening, sir. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so... Uh, I have I've been paying insurance premiums now for 65 years and I've never 
had a claim, never put in a claim. And uh, a couple of months ago, I got a letter from the insurance that uh, we won't renew your insurance next year unless you replace your oil tank. There was nothing wrong, there was nothing wrong with my oil tank anyway. But anyway, uh, they said, we won't renew your insurance. So I almost told them to stick the insurance up where the sun don't shine, but I didn't because at my age, I'll soon be uh, not wanting a house. I'll I'll have a, a little plot somewhere. But uh, uh, they uh, they still insist on replacing oil tanks, and they're costing people thousands of dollars to replace oil tanks. And uh, you know, up to I've heard prices up to five thousand dollars to replace an oil tank. I mean, this is totally ridiculous. And we've been doing, look, I, I, I was in the shipping business at one time. And since the Second World War, we've been uh, doing ultrasound tests on, on steel, like, like the steel plates and vessels. And uh, why in the hell can't the insurance company come up with a program to, to uh, do an ultrasound on my tank instead of having to replace it. Now, in in the meantime, I've gone ahead and replaced it, and I've sent in the certificate from the installer who was a certified installer, and now they phoned back and they said they want pictures and they want me to fill out a questionnaire and all the rest of it. So what the hell? Intact got everything bought up. They got all the agents and brokers bought up in Newfoundland and they got it in their own hands, and they can tell you what to do with your own home. You can't you you, you can't do what you like anymore. So that's some of the things that were on my chest. And I, <laughs> I wanted to get them off. Well, I'm glad you did exactly that here on the show. The issue about getting some additional supports in the home, you know, we've got to figure this out. So it's either people are come to a point in their life where you know some minimal assistance required so that they can happily and healthily healthy live in their own home versus arrive at a point where they say oh well now i've got to go to home i can't take care of myself i can't take care of the home when in fact sometimes and if we look at cost comparisons there's no question in my mind that legitimate and adequate support at home for seniors versus the cost to have them in a long-term care facility, what that costs compared to what the home support would cost, we'd win by keeping them at home. So many seniors want to stay at home. The whole concept of aging in place, in place we have to figure that out. I think there's some stuff happening in the country that is going to make that easier and more attractive and reasonable for seniors but we have to go down that path and inside the grocery store i feel your pain i'm the grocery store uh, shopper in my family it is simply unbelievable thankfully we've got a two-income family and my boys both work so i'm able to keep the wolf away from the door but i stand on those lines and i think how can people who are either fixed incomes and or working for minimum wage or close to it or poorly paid, or the working poor, how they're making ends meet, I have no earthly idea. But I hope you're doing okay, Hillard, and I'm glad you called this morning. Stay in touch. Okay. Take good Very care of yourself. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, uh, let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. 
Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go line number two. Terry, you're on the air. Hi, Terry. I uh, chatted with you there uh, a little while ago, not that long ago, about uh, National Darts. Yeah. A couple of the local boys there. Just wondering if you got a chance to watch any of the matches. I didn't get a chance to watch any of the matches, but the general secretary of the Darts uh, Federation nationally called the show the next day because we, we followed up on your request. Uh, or uh, I guess it was early the next week, you know, where the boys were second in the team event. We actually won the national title uh, in the ladies' event. She's going to be, uh, she's from Grand Falls, Windsor, I believe. But no, I did not get a chance to watch any of it, Terry. Oh, I see. Yeah, I heard the interview with that Mrs. Okay. I heard that one. Yeah, she was good. Yes, it was an excellent interview, yeah. Yeah, but uh, no, the, the boys done real well, I must say. Uh, I'm after watching the match they played there in the, finals uh, a couple of times and uh yeah this <laughs> a lot of pressure i guess when you're up on that stage i've never been there myself but i imagine when you're up on that stage and everybody's watching it's totally different oh look but, um, go ahead i was just going to say every, you know there's pressure in all types of games and sports but in the individual sports it's a completely different kettle of fish oh definitely yep but at the end of the interview the other day there, when I was talking to you, you played uh, a clip from uh, a non-darter? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah? Who was the, who, I didn't catch it. It's uh, it's one of my favorites, not only because of the feat of a non-darter, but it was in the World Championships, and yeah. uh, it was the, the commentary is what really drives it for me. It's a I British guy. I right. thought it was, yeah. Yeah, the commentary yeah. is just... Absolutely, utterly amazing. It's a British guy named Dean Wynn Stanley, and he beat a Dutchman, uh, uh, Vincent van der Voort, in that particular game with his nine-darter. It, it's extraordinary stuff. I mean, I don't know how anyone could pull it off. You Imagine the game of 501s played in less than 90 seconds. <laughs> it's just something else. Have you ever had a nine-darter, Terry? No. No, <laughs> no I, I wish. Yeah, no but, kidding. Uh, just, just for a little bit of information for you, John Lowe hit the first uh, televised nine-darter against Mike Gregory in 1984. Okay. That was the first televised perfect game. John Lowe, he was he was one of the better. I don't know if you've ever seen him play, but what a, what a start he got. Oh, yes. Shooting. I'm familiar with John Lowe, Eric Bristow, that era. Uh, John Lowe was here in the city playing darts in the 80s. He was. Yeah. Actually, he was, yeah. And I, I played against three of the boys. I played against uh, Bob Anderson, Dennis Priestley. Oh, yeah. And Peter Everson. Now, not in the city. I played out there in the bay against them at the local clubs there, right? We, we had them come over. And uh, that year, Jackie Wilson was supposed to come, but he didn't show up. That's funny you say and that, because I was just going to mention Jackie Wilson. He had those glasses, those weird glasses that he wore when he played darts. Yeah, I, I didn't really think he was so good until I started watching him in the last couple of weeks there. I didn't think he was so good, you know. But he was a good there player. Uh, but means we're on that topic, come the fall, now I'm not sure if it's going to be at the Rexplex or the uh, CLB Armory, but there's uh, several pros coming here uh, to St. John's. Like who? I'm not sure which ones now, but... Okay. 
right? It's fun yeah, to watch them play. Some... The consistency is just truly amazing. To watch them beat the treble off the 20 time after time is something else. Oh, oh man, I'm telling you, there's nothing yet, really, eh? Well, they're not called pros for nothing, right? That's I mean, true. You know, they, uh, they well deserve that uh, recognition for sure. That they do. Terry, I'm glad you called again on this topic. Uh, anything for a little bit of fun and distraction from some of the other issues, most welcome by me. Yeah, but uh, one of them commentators there one time, I guess, uh, I think it was Eric Bristow, he had, uh, he had Jackie Wilson under pressure. And uh, the commentator went on to say in that exciting voice, Oh, my, he said. I can't say it like it. But he said, you know, he got jockey. He said, Swe uh, sweating like a swamp donkey. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, Eric was Bristow fun, right? was an interesting player and an interesting commentator with a wicked thick Cockney accent. Yeah. Did <laughs> you ever see his mother? No. Oh, my. Spent an image of each other. <laughs> really? She was a handsome woman? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, Eric is not with us anymore. You know that, right? No, I do know that, yeah. Yeah, he's gone. But anyway, Patty, that's enough taking up your time. Uh, thanks for the hair time. I appreciate the call, Terry. Thanks a lot. Bye. All right, bye-bye. There you go, some flashbacks. Yeah, John Lowe, Eric Bristow, the crowd of them were here in town. Uh, Lowe was, anyway. Let's go to line one. Marjorie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you this morning? Best kind. How about yourself? Oh, not a bad, beautiful day out here on the West Coast. Glad to hear it. Patty, I just listened to that gentleman who was a senior living in his own home looking for a bit of help. I am a senior, and I mean a senior senior. I'm living a single senior in my own home, and I thank God every day for that. I thank God that I can get around, do what I can do when I feel like doing it. I'm fortunate that I have a family member, a very good family member here in the city, that can do a bit of shopping if I need it or do things that I can't do. But I'm not satisfied. The citizens are the people who made this country. And we hear of every sector in the workforce, everybody, looking for raises, looking for money, looking for help. But yet our seniors get very little. Uh, and, and the cost of living, I believe that... I know it's a privilege to be able to live in your own home. I think that more people today, uh, you take, as you just commented in your, in your caller, the cost of living in a senior's home and the cost of a senior living in her own home, in their own home, I mean, it, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And I think that more seniors in living in their own home should be helped. Like, there are ways to help. My husband and I both worked all our lives. I pay my taxes. I, I have health insurances that I pay. I go to government for very little. But, you know, there comes a time when you wonder. When you go to the store, as my family member went the other day, and I wanted to get a bag of flour, she took a picture of that bag of flour. She said, it's twelve ninety nine for seven pounds of flour. Now, Patty, you know, if you bring in a bale of flour with X number of bags in a bale, does the cost have to be that high on one single bag? And I believe that seniors can be helped. They can be helped in taxes. They can probably get a little bit more in revenue. 
They can be helped with their city taxes and their ways to help seniors. And I believe that this is something that our government should be working on, some way to help seniors to stay in their own homes. And I say governments, I say federal and provincial. I'm so thankful for the benefits that I have received, but it's a far cry from what I have to pay out. And if I need an hour's help today, like that gentleman previous, if I needed an hour's help or a couple of hours a week or a day, I can't get it. So I think the citizens, uh, governments, and should take a little uh, deeper look at our seniors and ways to help them. And I'm happy to keep talking about it on the program. I'm glad you're sounding and, and feeling well, Marjorie. Thanks for the time this morning. I am. And there are days like everybody that there are good days and bad days. But every day that I wake up and can get up in my own home, I say, thank God I'm home today. It's nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks, Marjorie. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, we're out of time, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.